You've got a passion for the outdoors, a desire to feel the warm sun on your face, the sound of your fly line whipping through the air, the pop of the water as the fish inhales the fly you just found in the floorboard of your truck. You need to feel the cool waters on your feet, the crisp north breeze of a November morning, the sound of a turkey gobble, the December rut, the chills of an elk bugle in September. It's the longing passion to chase your obsession. This is what we share. This is what we preach. Welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. What's up, Honey Hole homies? Welcome to Honey Hole Hangout, where we talk about fly fishing, hunting, and conservation. Today, we have a great guest. Sean Donovan from the San Antonio River Authority is with us. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Sean and I met at a San Antonio River Authority event. I was randomly fishing. They were throwing an event, so I went in and checked everything out and met you and Austin. Sir. And uh, we kind of hit a connection, and now you're coming on. You're on the podcast. Here we are, yeah. Not too, not too many weeks later. Crashed yeah. the party, and now we yeah. have a guest on. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It, worked, it worked out pretty well. Yeah. So we're going to talk with Sean in a bit about what the San Antonio River Authority does and some science that they're working on and kind of understanding what their role is for the San Antonio River. But before we do that, we have a quick note from our sponsor. From the vice to the boat, to the bank, to those moments you connect to a fish. Loon Outdoors is with you every step of the way, with tools designed at the bench and on the water to help make your best day on the water better. Okay, so Loon sent us a, a package of goodies. of goodies of all their new products for this year. Not all of them, but a lot of the new products for this year. And we're giving all of them away. Zach and I filmed today a YouTube video of kind of going through all of their new gear, just kind of showcasing it. Not really a review because we didn't really test test them, but just kind of like showing what it is. Why didn't we test test it? Because we're giving it away. We don't want to <laughs> give used products bag. away. <laughs> 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 oh, here's this uh, used set of pliers that are half, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Still smells like fish. Yeah, and, yeah. 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 I mean, we already gave Nick some used flies. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, here's the deal on that. If you guys want to win that gear, here's what you need to do. We started a campaign called Honey Hole Hates Trash. And it's very simple. All you need to do is next time you're out on the river, hiking, walking, biking, fishing, you're on public land hunting, take a trash bag with you, fill it up with trash. Go to the description of this podcast, go to our YouTube channel or go to our website. There will be a link that says Honey Hole Hates Trash. Click on that link, fill out the information that's requested there. Including a picture. Including a picture of the trash that you picked up. Very simple. We need your email. We need how much the trash weighed so we have some kind of statistic to, tr to track how much trash is cleaned up throughout out this whole thing. And all you have to do, it doesn't matter how much trash you pick up, as long as you pick up some trash, fill out the information, upload a photo, you're entered to win. We will do an Instagram Live or something like that, and we'll draw a winner, and then we will mail it to you for free. All of the Loon gear, all of the gear that Loon sent us. So, um... It's very simple. If you guys have any questions, reach out to us. Yeah. And you got to share your picture on Instagram. Hashtag honeyhole 
hates trash. That's not a requirement, but that would be very nice if you helped <laughs> by doing that. It is now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds official. Yeah, yeah we we're going to cross-trek the winner to make we, sure that they share it on Instagram. We can verify it. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, was that clear? Did that make sense? Yeah, no, that's awesome. Okay. We, uh, yeah, it's really cool to hear you guys doing that. That's really, really cool to hear the the anti-litter campaign we had one of our own for a while we still have it going on is don't let litter trash your river so to oh, see that's you, a great yeah, name. to a see name. you guys come out and doing this kind of thing is really really cool too and we don't have goodies to give away we just give away sarah trash bags so you guys one upped <laughs> us with those <laughs> a sweet package of stuff well sean send all your guys that pick up trash and send them to fill out some goodies we can yeah. do okay. a little double dip yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're already there <laughs> yeah you're already here yeah. and if, if we win the giveaway we'll just give it away to somebody else yeah, too you there know you go. Go. yeah keep yeah. a, right? a yeah. circle of giving away well our goal is this is going to run until the new year and so what our goal is is that we're going to run two month campaigns they're going to restart every two months it'll be a different prize package so uh we're still looking for somebody to donate gear and equipment for january and feb the months of january and february so if you or you know someone that would want to donate a decently nice prize package to win that would be great but our goal is that this is a continuing thing so sean if you go out and you pick up trash in december and turn it in but you don't win but then you could turn around in january and february do the same thing and maybe build up a habit of every time you go out fishing you pick up some trash and you have an opportunity to win free gear yeah perfect uh, Zach, let's talk about, you went to some sporting events this weekend. Dude, it was the weekend of sporting events. So let's talk about your Lubbock trip first. Yep. So I went to Lubbock and, uh, I flew up there and I was there and had a good time. Let's see, got there late Friday night and then Saturday I went to that place called Sideline Provision. They sent me two okay. of the same shirt and, uh, I returned one. Oh, okay. Yeah, at, at the place. At the place. That's nice, cool. Yeah, they, I bought one. They sent me two, and I was like, you know what? I'm going up there in two weeks. I'm just going to bring them the extra. Now, is it, is it a shop, or is it also like the workshop to do the leather stuff, too? Or oh, no, no, no. You're thinking of sight line. Oh, I'm okay. Sorry. I'm talking about sight. Yeah. Line. <laughs> My bad. Yeah. 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 So now I know what you're talking yep, about. Yeah. No, uh, so then I did go to um, the little alumni center, got a drink there, some free popcorn and stuff. But they had the Gin Blossoms playing. At Raider Alley, which is like our big like tailgate area, so you know who the Gen Blossoms are. No, no. like a nineties like, <laughs> like band. Basically. I remember when Shaq was there. Yeah, last year. Yeah, no, Gen Blossoms sing that song. On campus. Uh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So was, you know, yeah, that was a good song. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> and one of our podcasts, as uh, uh, all who has provided with us uh, some uh, some drinks, um, they were there. They had a booth. So I went up and I was like, hey. You guys said my podcast some drinks, and they're like, "Oh, hey!" So I met Nick, great guy. Um, yeah, hooked me up. So it was it was awesome. But then Tech One, and then I went to bed at one o'clock in the morning and woke up at three o'clock for a flight. Ugh. Oh, that's so cool. why even go to bed? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was it was tough. I that just is horrible. And then I went to the SAFC game, which is San Antonio Football Club, and it was the USL Championship game. So, you know. Like the super, I kept telling Kendall, it's like the Super Bowl, <laughs> you know. It's like that type of a game, but for USL. But San Antonio won. It was so much fun. What if was the score? Three to one. Nice. It was three to That's zero. That's pretty. Three goals in a game is pretty yeah, exciting. That, yeah. yeah. It, it, let's see. So they got their first goal off a penalty kick in like the 47th minute. Ooh. So in stoppage time. And then um, the last two, we were on the other, like the end zone. So we got to see both goals lie like right there by us. Nice. So that was cool. And then um, 
they ended up scoring a goal like towards like the end of the game. But if you've never been to like a soccer game, it is by far my I've been favorite. to a SAFC game. They're fun. It's my favorite sporting event to go. And you invited me to go, but I was driving back from my own trip and I couldn't go. You missed out. I know. Yeah. <laughs> However, I did have a student like at the whole the whole arena, right? Yeah. I had a student sit two rows in front of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, this is, this is how it goes. You tell him like, I don't know you right now. Like, yeah. I'm on. I'm no, not working. I did it. Yeah, I'm not working. I'm not working. I'm not a <laughs> Who are you? I don't recognize. Who are you? Do you see a shirt on this? No. <laughs> no. no. See my badge? Yeah. You see no badge? No. So Sean was listening to some previous podcast he called us out before he came in he's like i was listening to a podcast and you guys predicted tech to win seven games and it's not your predictions looking pretty bad right now hey i didn't say pretty bad what'd you say i said it may not be aging well because there's still two to go i mean you guys are on your way to bowl eligibility with again in theory iowa state is a win yeah and that's yeah. in lubbock yes is it i don't know either don't way You'd think. One would think. Right. And then obviously the OU game, which oh, it's nice to see OU not doing great. Yeah. yeah. Everybody, I think everybody likes that. It's, right? it's our watch. best chances to win. Like, it's our best chance going into a game at success is against OU as right. we've probably ever seen. Right, exactly. So, we're – would I put we, money on it? Would I put $100 <laughs> on us going seven wins? Maybe 100 but not much more than that. <laughs> <Not much laughs> it, is a, it is a good call, though, right, you know, Preseason, if you would have said tech for seven, people probably would have been like, there's no way. And now there's a pretty clear way to make it happen. And right. whether that seven is in a bowl game or that seven is in Norman, that's there's a chance. True. Oh, you know hey. what? So, hey, it could be with a bowl game. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Which yeah. still counts. And all, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it all adds up. Yeah. Yeah. So, here you go. Perfect. Maybe be a great prediction. Right. Yeah. And it also, the that was the weekend that you guys were talking about LSU losing to Florida State. And yep. now LSU is maybe making the playoffs. Yeah. So you guys had some very very good early football conversation that is yeah. we tried to it's aging better than <laughs> i originally said <laughs> <laughs> as sure. we've talked it out it's, yeah. it's not bad it's, it's not a bad, bad. It's not bad. let's it's come bad. back in two weeks <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. When, this, when this episode comes out people will be like oh they're so wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, we, yeah this episode will come out when those games have already been played <laughs> yeah, there you go and we will they'll be <laughs> even <laughs> worse yeah. yeah we can follow up yeah nothing so, um, I went to Decatur, which is north of Fort Worth this weekend, did some family stuff. Uh, nothing super eventful other than we were going to go shoot clays, and they were having a youth shooting competition. So, they were like, oh, the wait time for shooting is like five hours. And we're like, nope. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's find something else to do. That's not even a wait time. They're yeah. just like, don't, don't come. <laughs> yeah. We're closed. It's going to be dark in five hours. Yeah. Are we going to be able to see anything? So, we're like, what else can we do? So, we're like, it was me. And my three younger brothers, it's we all live in different cities. So um, I'm in San Antonio. My next youngest brother, Preston, is in Austin, and he has a pretty demanding job, so it's hard for him to get away. And then my next youngest brother's in Lubbock, um, finishing up school. And then my youngest brother is in uh, is at UNT University of North Texas, so he's in Fort Worth. So we're all in different places. So getting us all together in one place has not happened in probably years. So we were all together one place one time, so we decided we're going to do an escape room. And uh, we had a blast. We went to, I can't remember the name of the escape room, but our theme was, have you guys done an escape room before? Yeah, I did one with you. Yeah, we did the zombie one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a good one. That was that was like five years ago, maybe yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. 
You done you saw and you've done some? We did one as a team building thing for work and yeah. man that was an interesting dynamic to try <laughs> it, it's funny how people choose yeah. that as a team bonding yeah. thing and I'm and like you either yeah. cut each other's throats or I guess bond yeah. Yeah. yeah nobody got their throats cut but I feel like we didn't bond so we <laughs> found the weird middle ground did y'all escape no no Ooh. yeah oh yeah okay yeah. I can see how they be finger pointing after that yeah I'd, if you're competitive I could see like a week of just being like bitter about it be like well, if Jim didn't do this. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. Gabe, it. have you done one before? No, we should do <laughs> we one. Should. We should do a podcast. They are fun. One. Let's do it. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. So uh, we did. We we picked the only one available. Probably wouldn't have been our first choice, but we there was a submarine themed one where basically the backstory is that. Well, I, for, for ne- someone that's never done, so when you go to these, they have different themed rooms. Yeah, they have yes. like four or five. Four or five different themed rooms. So they like. The options were like Wild West, a uh, zombie, a submarine, maybe like a pirate themed. I feel like there's a pirate one. themed one. Okay. Yeah. So they have different themes and they're different uh, backstories and different ways to escape, basically. I've done a South Park themed one before. That one was <laughs> super fun. It was very immersive. Um, like you're in the classroom. Oh, really? And like Cartman would <laughs> show up on the screen and uh, then like say, You guys effing suck, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. It was, it was really cool. Um, but so this one, the, the backstory is that we were in a submarine and we hit a mine in a minefield. So we lost all power to the sub and we lost all flotation in the sub. So we're basically a submarine on the bottom of the ocean. So what we had to do is we had to restore power to the submarine first, and then we had to find a way to bring it to the surface. And so this was, it was two rooms. So we're in one room first. So we have to find our way into the second room. And then once we're in the second room, we have to do some stuff. So it's the four of us also learned that after having done a couple escape rooms, I think less people is better than more. Like, four people was pretty efficient. I think more people is more people throwing out weird ideas and, like, you know, <laughs> miscommunications happen. Well, when we did people. the zombie one, there was, like, eight of us in that room. Yeah. And somebody just kept farting. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a real, It was a real escape room. <laughs> and are they all pretty much, like, the same designated time frame? Like you, have an hour. Hour. you have an hour. You have an hour. So what was kind of uh, scary about doing the submarine is that they had all the records for the rooms posted on a whiteboard. So they're like, this room was like 28 minutes, another room was like 32 minutes. And we look at the submarine room, and the record was 56 minutes. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is going to be difficult. Like, did we choose the wrong room? Um, no, we did not choose the wrong room because we beat the record by eight minutes. Nice. nice. Yeah. yeah. See, this is the ones I'd rather do with coworkers. I, I'd be, I wouldn't want to do it with like family members or my wife and just be like, no, that's it. We're getting divorced. I think we're, the, do we're done. <laughs> we're done. I think the brothers was a good combo. There was some bickering that was going on, okay. but it wasn't extreme, but we're all brothers. So it just happens that if we were not doing an escape room, there would be bickering. You know what I mean? It's like no matter what we're doing, there's some bickering. Well, brother stuff was just man with work. Yep. You get you get two type A personalities in there, and we're like, I'm just gonna sit back. But <laughs> Y'all gotta just figure it out. <laughs> we kind of <laughs> divided and conquered, and so we like s- kind of split off into pairs of two, and kind of were working on different puzzles. And then with two of us working on one puzzle, we were able to figure it out and move on. And then we had another group working on a puzzle, move on. There were a couple times it took us a while to get through it, where we all kind of had to come together. Um, and escape room puzzles are weird, yeah, because you don't have to have any outside knowledge coming into the escape room. Like, you don't have to know that Austin is the capital of Texas. Like, you don't have to know any facts or information coming into it. All the information is there. There was one where we had to plug these cables in, 
and we figured out the pattern to plug them in, but they were color-coded, and we couldn't figure it out. We had them all plugged in, and it wasn't unlocking this thing that we needed. And we're like, the color has to mean something. Otherwise, they wouldn't be color-coded. Because at first, we're like, oh, they're just cables, kind of like guitar cables. Right. And we were just plugging them in. So and make then we sure no one is colorblind. <laughs> so we, balance them out we kept working on it and then realized that in the name of the other submarines for the cables that we were matching up was the color, was inside the name. So you have to, like, your, your brain has to, like, pick up on these weird little, little cues. And then there was this other wheel that, like, decoded a message. There were two of them. And we had to switch the ring, so they intentionally put the rings on. Tell us all the puzzles, so maybe yeah. <laughs> Zach and I can gonna, go and beat it yeah. by. Hey, yeah. we already done fifteen minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna change your yeah. record. Yeah, so it, it was it was super fun. I like escape rooms. Um, I think they're a blast, especially if you're in a good group. I could see a work group being. And it's weird when it's not difficult. If it's all people at a similar level, like we're all biologists. We go out in the field and do stuff together. This is fine because we've talked trash to each other. Mm-hmm. We've kind of like picked fun at each other. It's a fun dynamic when you go and it's like, this person's our manager. This person's uh, our supervisor. Yeah. It's like, uh, do <laughs> I do I call them? Do I call their idea stupid? <laughs> <laughs> because we're gonna leave and go back to work here yeah. in a second. So yeah, <laughs> I think that made some interesting things. So no, with brothers, you don't gotta worry. About yeah, exactly. That. Yeah. Like, yeah. Dude, that's stupid. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah but here it's like you just better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, you can't be like you were completely wrong, yeah. Deborah. Yeah. Go sit in the corner. You're on a, t- a ten minute timeout. Yeah. And then two hours later, it's like, hey, Deborah, I'm looking for some days off sometime <laughs> soon. Is that all right? Uh, well, I'm gonna. Yeah. Is this idea stupid? stupid? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so dynamics are important. So, but yeah, escape rooms are fun. Don't do it with uh, you know supervisors or your managers and like that. Just yeah. a, a you know my opinion. <laughs> take take with that where you will. So, yeah. Uh, did we finish the zombie ones? Zach? We did, but they gave us all the hints. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We definitely used all the hints. And then the South Park one we did. But the South Park one had a lot more puzzles than the submarine one. Submarine was kind of weird because it had this. Uh, control station and we actually had to move the submarine around underwater i think because we're all young guys and kind of understand video games and that sort of thing we probably had an easier time with that i think a lot of people might get stumped on that i think we had an easier time with like maneuvering it around and doing all of that um where some a different group that may have been more difficult so like a big part of the puzzle was like actually operating the submarine which was kind of cool but anyway, so that's what I did over the weekend. Oh, we took the travel trailer out. Um, I'm sure you guys saw it in the mm-hmm. driveway. Mm-hmm. And uh, wife and I, for the first time, taking it out in the winter. And I'm proud to announce that the heater works fantastic. Nice. Do you guys the winterize it? Uh, winterize it. Uh, yeah, you're supposed to right. winterize it if you're putting it away. Um, I've pretty much done everything except... You have to get the water out of the water pump. But we've never used the water pump because we've always been hooked up directly to a water source. And you only have to run the water pump whenever we're using stored water to run through the shower and sink. So I don't know if there's water. In, I don't think there's water in the pump that I need to winterize. But the big thing is just making sure there's basically no water in the trailer that could freeze. Right. I mean, I'll double check. Yeah. Because that's like a thing, right? With yep. people who have RVs, like, did you winterize it? Oh, I winterized it last week. Yeah. You know. I don't know. Did you winterize your pop up? My pop up has no water, which <laughs> 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 <It> is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> However, I'm excited to use it. LLO for 
for uh, Confest. I know. Uh, we got a spot right next to yours. I know, dude. I'm excited. So if anybody has a travel trailer and wants to camp at L&L during Trout Fest, we are spots number, was it 133 and 134? Uh, 133, 132. 133 and 132. Yeah. Come join us. We'll have one Come day honey us. hole hangout. Yes. Do you, do you need <laughs> this? Like, if you wanted just to, like, tent it up, can you do that? Are there spots out there? You're, there's a ton of just tent. Lynn and I just tent camped one time. Yeah. Yeah. I got and my tent I think cot. This, I love it. I think the spots that we picked, honestly, if you have a tent cot yeah, and you thing. just want to, like, camp at our just site, just don't even get a us. site. Yeah, yeah, just hang out between us. Okay. We got yeah. a nice spot right on the river. Yeah, and I think the spots that we got, McKenna said, are either for tent camping or RV, and they mm-hmm. have the hookups. So if you have a tent and you want a spot next to us, that's an option. Yeah, you don't have to have an RV yeah. or a travel trailer. Exactly. So, but also perfect. just a short walk to everything that's going on. Yep. Yes. Yep. Okay, Gabe. Uh, you went fishing on the same. Yeah, we did. We did a couple of things. We went to um, took the girls out to uh, finally use our botanical garden passes. They're getting all their lights set up um so they did that and we walked around and um it's really, oh, nice. really nice yeah it's really nice uh like christmas it, lights uh, they were in the middle of doing two things they had this like they had this it was like a flashlight night and they were getting some of the lights going and about half of them were, were out and looked really cool uh and then that's moving into this other like holiday um thing that they have going on where i think you actually have to like it's a path, and so you're given, like, 15-minute intervals that you'll walk through. So when we went, it was like a flash, a family flashlight night, but they had all of those, you know, half of those things up. So the, 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 uh, they had s'mores for the kids. They had um, – we took our flashlights. I took, took my 1100 Lumen Surefire and <laughs> – Blasted, blasted yeah, trying to look for <laughs> some owls. People's eyes. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and uh, and we did that. That was that was that was a really cool evening, especially with the colder weather. The botanical yeah. gardens are really nice, actually. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. You know, nothing like going to that back spot and trying to figure out like, man, if I had a four weight right now, this this would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, there's some big bass back in there, <laughs> um, and some some heavier. Uh, you know, usually we'll we'll go at the if you go to the gift shop, they actually sell little uh, like dog pellets or whatever to. You know, actually go and feed the ducks and stuff with like a dollar for a little bag. So the kid and I always know where to go and, and grab it, and we go walk there and and we'll start tossing and and seeing the stuff that comes up. So it was you pretty could probably sneak a tin car rod in there. That'd be I good mean, use for a tin car rod. <laughs> you got that little shorty one. I'm not kidding. There's been some times where we've been out there like because early are on. Are there any no fishing signs? There are not. <laughs> there are not. I might just be willing to test my luck. There are not. <laughs> and, of course, if you have a bag and you look like a birder, no one's going to ask you anything. And that's what I was doing. I would go there early and do some birding stuff and then realize that, like, man, I'm in the back here. And, like, nobody's here. And there's some nice big fish in this pond. And they probably never get fish for it. And all they need is little f- pellet flies. <laughs> And just drop a <laughs> just just take an egg pattern yeah, and, yeah. and felt tip marker at brown yeah. and ooh, man just, you're yeah just catch a duck Gabe yeah no we deal. could do that too <laughs> caught a pelican once that was not by choice but oh, man. yeah uh, but um, yeah we we did that and then uh, Saturday uh, Chris was like hey Bucky's has dropped their Christmas shirts so now oh, she's got to have all the Christmas shirts so the kid and I drove up to Bucky's did a little trip and then. Um, you know, Bucky's was. Wait, nice. y'all did a trip just to go to Bucky's. It wasn't no, just I like, mean, hey, no. let's stop at Bucky's on our way to somewhere else. It was like, so hey, we're doing a destination trip to Bucky's. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Seems yeah. like a yes. Yeah. So a kind of is a yes. And wait, it was just Bucky's for the Christmas shirt. 
specific, well, for the Thanksgiving and Christmas shirts. And now it all adds up. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's definitely um, <laughs> and it turns out Bucky's is the only place you can buy said Bucky's Christmas shirts <laughs> and, and Thanksgiving shirts. So um, we went out, and I, I'm putting some packages together for, for my teammates. So with my job, I'm the only one out of Texas, and all the other all my other teammates are all over in some other states. So there's there's six of us in total. Uh, and so I, I was getting some like Bucky nuggets and some Bucky stuff, you know, to send up uh, to them for for thank you gifts for the end of the year. Uh, so it wasn't like I said, it wasn't completely <laughs> wasted. And of course, I bought a crap ton of jerky. That steakhouse turkey they have oh, is amazing. Oh, that steakhouse one's yep. fantastic. Um, we rolled beaver nuggets are overrated, though. Yeah, yeah. The what? Correct on the beaver nuggets. Yep. Also correct on the jerky. The the turkey jerky, like the hill country turkey jerky, mm-hmm. is also. Fantastic. Yes. Now, I'm very interested in y'all's take about, now that you brought that up, uh-huh. the Bucky's. Why do you say that it's overrated? I'm just not a fan. I yeah. want them to be different every time I get them. Really? Yes. And my wife gets them for me every time she goes to Bucky's, and I don't have the heart to tell her that they're not great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I doubt she'll know. <laughs> I doubt she'll know. Just keep she it quiet. Gets, she gets me beef jerky and beaver nuggets, and yeah. I'm like. Wait, she doesn't listen to the podcast? No. No. There you go. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. no. Secret safe. We're, we're sure. all safe on here. Yeah. However, I will say she's, she's been volunteering at a couple fly fishing uh, organizations, yeah. And um, she is talking to people who do listen to the podcast. So, oh, so oh. it might get back to her. <laughs> well, you got some time. This is still exactly. another like two weeks exactly. or whatever. Hey, outside. if you're listening right now and you know my wife, just yeah. let's be cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Be cool, dude. Don't be a narc. Be cool. <laughs> Don't be a narc. <laughs> so, and why, why do you not, what did you run it? Was there something else that's better? What do you? Yeah, it's, it's a similar vibe. Is like you can't really put your finger on it, but it just seems like it looks so appetizing in the bag. And you open it up, and it's like, you know, it's fine. But, yeah, there's just a lot of other options. You go to Bucky's, there's got a lot of a lot of good options. you got tons of jerky. you got all sorts of different oh, chips. In the, and so I feel yeah. like it's known for it, but there's so many better things. I mm-hmm. think they're too sweet almost. Yeah. It's just like it's, but it's, yeah, like, it's, like it's a, a, yeah. it a weird sweetness. Yeah, the texture and, you know, sometimes they're yeah. harder to chew on than, than others. But I just yeah. want it to be so, so different. It, it it also it's a it is a thing you get somebody if you're sending them like a, here's a Texas care oh, package yeah. Yeah. it's a hundred percent a thing you get them because sure. it is a known no. thing yeah. for it, Bucky it, so that's, that's one in there Whataburger spicy <laughs> ketchup um, Ooh, the white the white top or the black top uh the black the, the spicy well no the white top. oh the third small third. batch number two yeah. or whatever yeah. is white that top. in oh so I didn't know they sold those they don't sell the H, they don't sell at H E B. But okay. I mean, like you can go there and ask for the white ones, and they'll give them to you. I've oh, been yeah. I've been hoarding a stockpile. Not gonna lie, dude. There's so much better. <laughs> yeah, really. You yeah. think so? To me, it they tastes are. like if you took pecani sauce and ketchup and no. you just mixed it. That's maybe, maybe that's what I want. Maybe <laughs> maybe <laughs> if, maybe a beaver nugget tastes like that. <laughs> that's what I'm into. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we went and did that, but it wasn't 11 miles away. We we uh, kid and I ended up going to Seguin and hanging out with my in-laws. So we stopped by and and hung out with them anyway. So. Um, you know, I ran to HEB, cooked them some stuff for the week and, and things like that. So, uh, and they can hang out with the kids. So it was, it was a long day for, for definitely me and the kid. And she passed out in the back of the car. And of course the, man, the traffic on 10 is getting worse out there towards like, if you were leaving outside and going to Seguin, both times we're at a standstill on 1604 only to be pulled off of 1604 a couple of miles to then get back on. It was just it was like a, almost an hour and a half drive from Seguin back, Ugh. kicking myself that I didn't just drive back through, um, 
you know, through New Braunfels. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was wanted to go to Worst Fest, but just couldn't couldn't sneak out to go do the Worst Fest stuff. But um, no, it was it was a crazy weekend. It was pretty fun. And then oh, and then on Friday, um, you know, with with Veterans Day, I was kind of off, kind of not checking stuff. And a buddy was was hang, was out um, was out at um, which is at Mitchell Street Bridge, which is I guess that's Pro Band. <coughs> um, so there's a there's a parking spot there for the Mission Reach. And that's the first time I've ever been on it and seen the full res- uh, renovation on it. And it was really cool. It was really cool if I had a kayak. Um, you know, he was kind of waiting, and I'd never been, so I was, you know, I was kind of limited on what I could do. But, man, uh, like, I'm ready to go back in April when it finally starts warming up again and to go and really, you know, see the spots, check them out. And, um, you know, it was really only, like, 20 minutes from the house, so... It's like that's nice. A lot better than Tom Slick Park for sure. What were you? What were you targeting? Uh, were there you was particular. S- there were smaller bass, <laughs> and uh, we were at one of the. So on the other side of so you park, and then you walk. I don't know, maybe two hundred yards, and you're underneath the Mitchell Street Bridge, and there's like um, there's like a kayak. Um, I don't know what would you call those. They're just yeah, canoe shoots, kayak yeah, shoots, yeah. yeah. And so we we're just standing on the shoots ca- casting a bunch of bluegills. Um, but he did, I uh, believe he caught a, um, a smaller um, Rio Grande cichlids. But, you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on. You yeah. can see some big big blow-ups uh, further down river. But, you know, being the first one, just kind of getting some ideas. I'm like, okay, next time I come, I'm going to tie this. I'm going to tie these. These will work. And, um, yeah, so now now I'm excited. Now I'm excited to go back go back out there. Nice. That's, uh, that's full circle. That's where yeah. Landon uh, – Landon and I first ran into each other at Confluence Park right there at Mitchell. So yeah. Oh, that's, that's where we're yeah, at Confluence Park. That's where yeah, you were fishing yeah, yeah. that day. And I uh, saw so Landon walking up with the, the fly fishing net in the back, and this guy's got a, got it ready to go for the full day. So And then I barely fished because I was talking to so many people. <laughs> <laughs> Having a good time at the SA River. The so many things going on. Yeah. So. yeah. All right, Sean. So let's start talking about the San Antonio River Authority. So – your title, if I'm reading this correctly, is the Environmental Sciences Manager. Correct, yeah. So, so what does your day-to-day look like? Um, it, is, uh, it is a lot of administrative things now. So I, uh, my first seven and a half years were, I, was, I started off as aquatic biologist, and so much more engaged in day-to-day activities out in the field and on the river and on, you know, on kayaks or doing fish surveys or water quality sampling. And so now... Uh, in the environmental sciences department, we have we have about 30 folks, depending on if we have interns in the summertime or different parts of the year. Um, we have a, a lab <coughs> lab staff of 11. We have quality assurance, data management, and field staff. And so a lot of the work that I do is just kind of making sure that we have a strategic direction for our department and, and how we tie in with the rest of the agency. And um, so a lot of those kinds of things. But the staff in our department get to do all the fun things like fish surveys, freshwater mussel surveys, water quality sampling, a lot of the again, lab analysis, data management, data analysis, looking at trends over time, is the water quality getting better or worse? Are our fish communities getting more robust? Are we losing diversity? So our staff gets to do a lot of the fun things. I have a, the benefit of kind of being able to kind of stick my nose into some of those things from time to time. Um, but yeah, so a, a day-to-day is different now. I get our, a lot of our biologists will send me a text message on a Thursday that they're out kayaking somewhere down by Goliad and I, I have the you know the envy of looking at those and uh, <laughs> those pictures and not going to do that stuff anymore but still it, it's a it's a lot of fun it's a really cool place to really cool place to work and again we just get to interact with a lot of good people and, and do a lot of really cool things do a lot of education and outreach as a department there's a lot of interest in the community from 
Um, you know, this is a perfect example is we're, we were doing the River Symposium a few weeks ago and, you know, ran in the land and down at uh, River Symposium at Confluence Park. And I think a lot of people have that connection to nature, to wildlife. And so we had touch tanks and people see fish or freshwater mussels or apple snails. And it just, it sparks the curiosity. So we get a lot of really cool opportunities for one-on-ones with people like that. So it's a, it's a certainly a very fun thing to do. Again, I've been there for about 10 years now. Um, and yeah, it's uh, we have a lot of a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of interesting projects coming up to hope hope uh, to see to fruition. And um, next three to five years will be a very interesting time period for the River Authority and um, you know projects from a San, city of San Antonio wide basis all the way further down south. Why do you say that in the next three to five years is going to be interesting? There's there's a uh, really three, I'll, I'll say four big things that we have going at the River Authority right now. And I'll, I'll talk about two that are less involved with environmental sciences first is, so I think most people probably listening, go ahead. Let me, I'm going to actually stop you yeah. right there because I don't want to get too far ahead before just kind of setting some basic groundwork. Yeah. So before we get into those four things, what what is the San Antonio River yeah. Authority yeah. and what is their role? That's a really good question. Uh, one of my one of my best friends, he still goes, you're working for SAWS still, right? And I was like, no, I'm not working for SAWS. So SAWS, San Antonio Water System, uh, wastewater purveyors, drinking water. So the River Authority, uh, to go back to the very beginning, was where we were enacted by the Texas legislature in 1937. It was a response to significant flooding uh, throughout the early 20th century in San Antonio. Uh, that's the reason why the Riverwalk is is a channelized, you know, flood conveyance channel. Um, it was it was obviously built later to be an economic driver with bars and restaurants and hotels, but it was originally built to move water out of the city. And one of our original charter, the really interesting thing is, in our original charter, um, it was like San Antonio uh, you know, channel something. And the idea was the first exploration of the creation of the authority was flood conveyance stuff, but also looking at building a channel from San Antonio Bay all the way up to San Antonio as a shipping channel. So basically clearing out the entire San Antonio River to be a deep shipping channel to allow port a, a port of San Antonio. Uh, wow. Yeah, so would you know bring that up here and obviously as we all know today that didn't happen not, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> that, that yeah. But still the thought it, the thought of yeah. that that project itself that could have been a that, thing, yeah. right? And so I, I have no idea how, how much, how far that got into discussions and planning, but that was a legitimate conversation that was had. And so again, we, over the, over the, you know, 85 years now, cause it, it was, it, this is our 85th year, um, in establishment. And we're also this really, really unique position. So there's river authorities and pretty much ever, every river basin in the state. So there's Trinity river authority, Guadalupe Blanco river authority, Nueces river authority and San Antonio river authority. The, the unique part about us is that we're, uh, the way the enabling legislation was for us was we actually own the bed and the banks of the San Antonio River and a lot of the tributaries, not all of them. It depends on where we are. It's like Medina River goes up out of Bear County. So we don't own the bed and the banks outside of Bear County, but we own the bed and the banks of the Medina. So uh, say, you, say you're down and we also have our four county jurisdiction is Bear, Wilson, Carnes, and Goliad counties. So if you wanted to cross the river with a freshwater line in Goliad County, you'd have to come and talk to us because we own the bed and the bank. So if you're going to go under the river, you have to contract with us. And that's a pretty unique situation because that's not the same way. Uh, I know like navigable waterway stuff is a, is a huge rat's nest for people kayaking. In some places you can get off your kayak and go stand on the bank. In some places you're trespassing. In our, in, in our basin, if you're kayaking, for instance, on the main stem, you can hop off and go stand on a gravel bar and you're just fine. Or you can go stand on the bank, you're just fine because that's our ownership. Um, okay, so you're talking more like people who are 
building, like, like pipeline, exactly. like that. But, like, an angler, a kayaker, you guys are, like, there are, people are free to walk on the riverbed and stuff like that. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. And so, yeah, if, if exact, exactly right, uh, you know, context there is, it, yeah, if somebody wants to build a house and build steps down to the bank of the river, they have to ask us because that's, we own that bed and bank. Gotcha. So that would be trespassing on our property. The other part that makes that interesting is that we can actually, we're a taxing entity. We're the only river authority in the state that taxes property owners in our four-county jurisdiction. The really cool thing that makes that work for us is that we can, a lot of other groups like LCRA, Lower Colorado River Authority, Mm -hmm. you'll see if you drive in kind of central Texas or, you know, east central Texas, you'll see the power poles with LCRA tags on them because they sell electricity through a lot of the hydro dams in the Lower Colorado River. Dams obviously impact fish communities and environmental concerns and and you you reduce the amount of flows going downstream because obviously you're capturing that water because they need to do that to produce power well we don't have to sell water rights we don't have to sell power so we can focus a lot of our stuff on environmental type projects so that's a a a benefit that we have we're not a we're not the biggest river authority in the state we're not the biggest basin in the state but we have this really unique kind of set of circumstances that benefit us from an environmental perspective um, you know, we're, we're the leaders in the state and things like freshwater muscle work as far as river authorities go. And a lot of that is because we can do things in more of an environmental direction um, and not worry about how this environmental work is going to impact our bottom line with, with hydropower or water rights that we're selling. So, and that's not to say that other river authorities are not environmentally conscientious. They absolutely are. GBRA is doing a habitat conservation plan for a bunch of endangered species right now. They're doing a great job with environmental work. Trinity River Authority does a lot of really good freshwater mussel stuff. But again, they're, the overall drive of those organizations is just, it's just different. Not better, not worse, just just different. So it's kind of an interesting way. So I'm, it's a good question to kind of bring it back so to that. So at the most basic level, San Antonio River Authority manages the water um, that goes through the four counties that you mentioned earlier, uh, Bear County, Wilson County, Carnes County, Carnes and Goliad and County. Goliad County. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, and w- do, you, do you all work with saws too? Because I'm sure there's wastewater discharge yep. and within that, there's got to be within that area. Right. Um, yep. So do you all work with saws and some of the other organizations that touch water that comes through that? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Saws is a, is a huge part of our, of our collaboration. So uh, there's been a lot of stories recently, like Express News or San Antonio Report about effluent discharge, because everybody thinks effluent going into the river and you think, you know, effluent is, is treated wastewater. So you use the restroom, you flush the toilet, that goes to a treatment plant, and then they treat that water and then they discharge effluent. Right now, for instance, it's pretty dry in Texas. And so most of the water in the San Antonio River is effluent. And so without that discharge, we would, we would be a dry river a lot of times because the Edwards Aquifer is the headwaters up in Incarnate Word Campus. That's dry most of the time right now because we've tapped into that. So those springs, there's a lot of straws in that, in that, in that cup of the Edwards Aquifer. So those levels have gone down. So the natural springs don't flow at the headwaters of the San Antonio most of the time. So effluent is, is usually the flow that is in the river unless we have a lot of rain going in the system. Um, the other part, and, and to call back to Gabe's traffic issues in Seguin on the trip to Seguin, is that uh, development is just blowing up out there. So we actually have utilities staff and a utilities department that treats wastewater on the eastern part of Bear County. So for the most part, if you're in Bear County, Saws is treating your water, but the River Authority treats your water on like the eastern part of Bear County. So think of of shirts, Converse, uh, those kind of areas, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit south of shirts, but 
that general part of the, of, of the city. So we do have, it's called a, a certificate of convenience and necessity is basically the, the geographical area that we treat the water for. It's fairly small relative to SAWS, but yeah, our relationship with SAWS, with CPS on like Calaveras and Bronig Lakes, um, our relationship with um, the city and the county are hugely important. And whenever we kind of get into those, like, you know, the four projects I talked about, the city and the county play huge roles in that. Uh, we're a project manager for a lot of the things they do. So uh, San Antonio has has pretty efficient local government, pretty, um, pretty good collaborative local government. So there's not there's always, you know, little, little things between different entities here and there, but for the most part, we have a really good collaborative relationship with Bear County and the city of San Antonio and, and SAWS and CPS. And we work together and we share information and we have like Bear Regional Watershed Management is a, is a group, a collective group of, of the city, the county and the river authority that works together on flood mitigation issues and water quality issues. And so it, it is nice to see the collaboration between different entities in the city because it's not the case in every large, you know, we're the seventh biggest city in the country and it doesn't feel like that all the time, but it's a good collaborative environment to be in between some of a yeah. lot of those local government agencies. Okay. So San Antonio River Authority, um, you guys are not a nonprofit or are you a nonprofit? We are not a nonprofit. Okay. We have, uh, we work with the San Antonio River Foundation okay. is, is loosely, loosely affiliated. It's affiliated with us. That is our nonprofit group. Gotcha. And we also have the San Antonio Bay Partnership that is coastal. Yep. Um, okay, so then do you guys report to the city, the state, the county? Uh, or <laughs> if anywhere, you guys use your own separate yep. thing that's kind of like working with the state, but you don't necessarily have to, like, report to Right. Them. Yeah, that, uh, another really good question is, so we are, we don't really report to anybody yeah. in, in the sense because we have our own revenue production. We have our utilities department that treats wastewater. So there's, we have, we have revenue coming in that way. We have revenue coming in from tax collector or as a tax collecting entity. Right. The other part is we have a we have a lot of pass through funding. So um, there's these big like Mission Reach is a great example. Mission Reach was a 384 million dollar project with a San Antonio River Improvement Project. So 384 million dollars that didn't come from the River Authority. That came from the city, the county, Army Corps of Engineers, and we were a pass through for a lot of those funds. So federal dollars came through. We were a project manager. So. Our groups helped with design and helped with oversight of construction, but like we weren't, our staff wasn't driving front loaders to move dirt out of there. Right. And we now do operations and maintenance for this, you know, largely federal project. So we're a big pass through of funds for largely the city and the county because we have a really good reputation as really good project managers. Um, project managers from a construction design engineering perspective, but also project managers from a very environmentally conscientious perspective, obviously with our environmental sciences department, we can value add to a lot of these projects that other groups may say, let's build this trail or let's do this basic construction project where we say, what if we build this trail, but then we can also have uh, a better riparian buffer along the edge of the river so it can treat stormwater? Or what if we're doing this, this a bank stabilization in a part of a creek that's going to impact a neighborhood. What if we put some in-stream cover in there for fish in the waters? So like that's the value added that the river authority can bring in addition to doing these large scale projects. Awesome. So is uh, since it's a tax collecting entity, who is the head honcho of the river authority? And is that an elected position or is that an appointed position? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, our, our highest staff member's name is Derek Bays. He is, he's a, you know, just a, an employee of the River Authority. He's our general manager, and we do have an elective board of directors. We have 12 directors. There are six from San Antonio, or six from Bear County, excuse me, two from Wilson County, two from Carnes County, two from Goliad County. The idea being that, um, as, as we all just saw in elections, you know, there's a big political divide between Bear County 
uh, Harris County, Travis County, and then a lot of the rural communities in Texas. So by having six from Bear County and six from lower communities, in theory, you have a very evenly divided board with with their constituents being, you know, rural individuals, urban individuals, uh, different interests. And we, we it's worked out really well because we have a lot of consensus on our board of, of doing things together. But it is an elected board. And that's another interesting thing about the River Authority, San Antonio River Authority, is that we're the only River Authority in the state with an elected board of officials, elected board of directors. Every other board of directors for every other River Authority is appointed by the governor. Okay. Um, really? So, yeah. So it's really cool that wow. the individuals, okay. again, it's a, you know, as a tax collecting entity, our, you know, our, it, it always sounds cheesy when people say it, you know, our, our bosses, the people that we ultimately answer to are the constituents of those four counties. And because we have elected board of directors who have an interaction and relationship with, with the constituents, they then have say in projects that we select. And, and our, our board is very respectful of the staff expertise, but they'll step in whenever they really want to see a project done and they advocate for certain things that are important to their constituents. So it makes our relationship with the, with the citizens Really are th- important. Are those elections generally part of general elections, like what we would have seen on November sixth, eighth? Yeah. Um, or are they? Uh, they're 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 usually is uh, you know part of uh, you know there's different cycles for different board members and when they come on and, and I I know that the uh, we went through this process called sunset review. Um, the the terms are changing, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm not gonna even venture guess the terms. It's three or four years, I think. Um, but they're usually like we have upcoming, we have May. There's more elections in May for like council members. Um, yeah. So it's usually those kinds of things. Gotcha. We do have people where like recently we had a Wilson County board member leave. If somebody leaves, they, their replacement, if they're in the middle of a term, gets re- gets replaced, replaced by a, a government appointee. So we had our two new, our two Wilson County board members are both governor, governor and appointees. Um because they left mid in the middle of their terms gotcha. and they'll be up for election. Some, some run unopposed, some run against somebody else, but um, overall we have a really engaged board. It's really, you know, really good relationships, interactions with those folks. And a lot of them have been there. What one guy, Trip Ruckman has been there for man 20 plus years uh, of serving on the board. So he's very well aware of what's going on and we have really good advocates for their local communities. And um, it's nice to have that kind of engaged okay. board. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So let's go back to the four big right. uh, projects in the next three to five years. So will you walk us through those? Yep, absolutely. So the one, again, I, I think that I'd imagine with the content you guys have and talking about, you know, Gabe talking about going fishing in the Mission Reach is people are probably familiar with the Mission Reach. So that was a, a huge project with the county, the city, Army Corps of Engineers, River Authority. And now we're going to do something similar on the West Side Creeks. So at Confluence Park, a lot of people probably familiar with that. Well, it's called Confluence Park because it confluences with the San Pedro Creek and the San Antonio River. San Pedro Creek has Martinez, Alazan, and Apache are tributaries to that further up, and it goes through the west side of San Antonio. Um, And we're doing a very large uh, federally funded, county funded, city funded project on the West Side Creeks over the next, I think it's five to eight years. And that'll be a, a giant, I think it's 13 miles of restored streams up in the West Side Creeks. It's a historically underserved part of the community. Uh, there's a really interesting book by an author named Char Miller called West Side Rising that was released, I think, a year or so ago. And it talks about how a lot of the flooding originally, San Antonio was built between San Pedro Creek and San Antonio River, and it's a floodplain. So as you'd imagine, it floods a lot. Well, a lot of the, the diversion tactics for those floodwaters was to dam up almost Creek which is kind of the start, the farthest north part of the main stem, 
dam up Olmos Creek, which por- pushed a lot of that water to the west side, which caused a lot of flooding, again, historically underutil- underserved community. And so it's, it's looking at flood conveyance as a first and foremost, which is what most of these Army Corps of Engineer projects are. But it's also looking at that from an, an ecological perspective, uh, restoring like a riffle run pool glide structure in stream uh, to have fish coming up back into that area. And so our, our department's involvement is we're doing a lot of pre-restoration baseline surveys right now. What fish species are in are in these creeks right now? Uh, what fish species do we think could come back in these creeks? We've done a ton of, of sampling on Mission Reach. We have a really good idea of the diversity, community composition of the Mission Reach of the San Antonio. Now we're looking at what is the what is the Westside Creek system today and what is the Westside Creek system in five or eight years. And so I'm really excited to see what that ecological lift looks like over time. So that's a really big one. The other one is, is another one is called Bear County Creeks and Trails Program. As you can imagine, it's a Bear County program looking at creeks and trails, uh, possibly some stream restoration, a lot of trail work with like Green Howard, Howard WP Greenway system, um, looking at a lot of that. So access to some of these different streams. Uh, that's a big one for the River Authority. Uh, that'll be exciting to see that progress. And the, the, the two that are really important from me personally are uh, we've been doing a freshwater mussel reintroduction effort for a while now. We've been working on propagation techniques. So how can we grow out freshwater mussels? Uh, we want to put four species of mussels back in the mission reach. Cause as you'd, as you'd imagine with the big stream restoration, it's all dewatered. You're, you're moving, you're moving the, the bed of the river. You're, you're literally driving bulldozers in a dry riverbed and you're diverting water into this little side channel. So as you can imagine, any, organism in that water system that is dependent on that water system is just going to be gone. Well, that's true for freshwater mussels, and they've probably been gone from the upper San Antonio for 50 or 60 years at a conservative estimate. So we're looking at restoring the population of four different species into the Mission Reach. We did a three-year called a survivability study that looked at how can these four species, how do they grow in the Mission Reach relative to a stable population downstream and the ones in the Mission Reach grew two or three times faster than a stable known population. So we know that they can survive. We actually saw them reproduce in the Mission Reach in these kind of cage systems we had set up so we could go find them every every three months or so. And so if we did that, it'd be the it'd be the first fully urbanized muscle reintroduction in the country. Um, you know, there's a lot of muscle reintroductions in kind of um, yeah, as Ohio guys here. Uh, so like Ohio area, um, Alabama, the Tennessee, those, th- that kind of part of the country is kind of the hot spot of mussel species. They also have a lot of threatened and endangered species. So they've been doing this propagation work for a long time. It's fairly new in Texas. And so all that work has been done in, in smaller, less densely populated areas. Whereas this again in San Antonio would be the f- kind of the first of its kind, large scale, freshwater mussel reintroduction in an urban area. So that would be a super cool thing for us to do a really cool accomplishment for the river authority. Um, it's hard because you're, you're dealing with live animals. You're talking about raise, trying to raise hundreds and thousands of live animals and things don't work out very well. So you have setbacks and, and, you know, conservation work is difficult and reintroduction work is difficult, but if we could push through that and get that done, that would be great. And the last one is one that we're kind of, early-ish stages of developing is is removing Otia Dam. So about maybe 12 to 15 miles downstream of downtown San Antonio is a structure called Otia Dam. It was built in the 20s. Um, it's now it's now kind of a just a structure sitting there. Originally upstream was a pool that was created for water rights purposes to help water a pecan orchard in a historic area. Saws used some of that uh, diversion water for a little bit. Saws hasn't used that water right in a while. 
and it's about an eight foot drop. Um, and it's really the, it's the most significant dam not in downtown San Antonio. So there's a spotted dam on the Mission Reach, which makes Davis Lake kind of by military drive. Mm -hmm. That's the other big one. But if we could get Otia Dam removed or at least modified so that there's a fish passage opportunity, we could get things like freshwater mussels all the way up into San Antonio proper, or excuse me, uh, American Eel, all the way up into like San Antonio proper. Mm, Really? Because, yeah, we've been surveying with Parks and Wildlife downstream of Otia Dam. We found freshwater eels right there. They are natural migrators upstream, and if if we moved that or modified that, we could get eels up into San Antonio, and then you could have more gar species coming up. And those are the four things that are really important, especially the reintroduction and the dam removal. Those would be kind of things that, in the next three to five years, I'm I'm very excited about. And then from a, just a community perspective, the Westside Creeks and Bear County Creeks and Trails programs will be really really big things, really really visible those all projects. Those sound like good projects. Yeah, the so, fact that it's like one a specific item that could really make a difference yeah. in, in yeah. the species that are in there seems really neat that it's that's it's just that yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's not a multitude it's obviously all the stuff to get to this point yeah. took a lot but knowing that there's that one that one area that's kind of holding some stuff back is pretty neat to find out what is the biggest issue that the san antonio river is facing or some of the bigger issues yeah. that it's facing yeah <laughs> it's funny to the the water quality is always Water quality is always a tough one. And is there like is there a solution for that, or is yeah. it kind of like you know? It's What's part, the reason for it? the yeah. water quality yeah. issue? Uh, being in an urban city center is, is the is the biggest concern. So uh, you know the the term impervious cover might be familiar to some. So impervious cover is essentially anything that water cannot absorb into. So like this this table right here, if you spilled a, a, a drink on this table. It's going to run off that top of that table. So this is an impervious surface. If you go out and pour a, a cup of water in your backyard, that's called a pervious surface because that grass is going to absorb the water. So what we see in an urbanized area is we see roads and sidewalks and buildings and, and parking lots and all sorts of things where um, the other part too is if, if, if all of us came in here and, and uh, we were cleaning fish on your kitchen table, there's going to be stuff all over it. And then if we spilled water, that stuff's going to run off onto the ground. And so it's a very similar thing that happens out in our community. So think about, you know, you're about to see those, uh, uh, those terrifying flocks of grackles everywhere that always come around in the wintertime. And there's thousands of them in the parking lot and they're all going to, they're all going to poop on the ground and it's going to rain and that's going to wash off into the river. So uh, urbanization and pervious surfaces are a huge part of that problem. There's a lot of other things that build into that, but stormwater is really where the concerns are. So if you were to go out, you know, people always think I'm crazy because getting in the job I've, I've done, I've gotten to, we have a dive program at the River Authority. So I've, I've gone diving in the river, scuba diving in the river for mussels or, you know, different activities that we've done. People think I'm crazy because like the river is just the dirtiest thing of all time. And it's like, if, if it's right after a rain event, that water looks dirty and that water is dirty. But if you give it about three days afterwards, the water quality is significantly better. And then as soon as you get about, if you get about Lone Star Boulevard, Roosevelt Park, which is just downstream like the Blue Star area, kind of the start of the Mission Reach, the water quality is exponentially better than it is in the Riverwalk area and in Brackenridge Park because you're just getting more natural spaces. You're getting more natural areas the grass can absorb, you know, the, the, the open pervious surfaces can absorb that water, can soak in like a natural system would. Because you think about, you know, I know you guys are all, uh, you, know, you know, outdoors people. And so you want wildlife, you want, 
you want you want a, an open field in Goliad County to have deer and possums and fox and coyotes and raccoons. You want those things. Like that's what makes the outdoors special to people. That's what makes Texas, you know, landscape special to people. So you're not going to go out and say, well, we have to get rid of all the deer and all the possums so that they stop doing their business and that gets into the river because in natural areas, the system's used to that. It can absorb that issue where you have this giant mass of concentration of people in San Antonio. The system just cannot naturally handle that because bacteria is a natural part of the, of the, of the ecosystem. Things like uh, nitrogen is a natural part of the ecosystem, phosphorus, but with humans around, all those things are exacerbated and just made much worse. And so it really is urbanization. But again, I always, I always caveat that with, I've heard people say, well, if you fall into the river, should you just go straight to the hospital? It's like, no, you just, you, you're going to be fine. Just take a, you know, rinse off if it's after, you know, stormwater event, probably want to change your clothes because it's probably uncomfortable to walk around in your wet clothes all day long. But it's, it's so exaggerated of like the, the poor water quality. That's so. actually good to know because I feel like even us, we... We joke about it. We do yeah. joke about it. I mean, especially know? like Brackenridge Park and like yeah. when fishing yeah. and like, oh, I want to wash my hands. You yeah. Know? You, yeah. You, sh- you should. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brack- yeah. Brackenridge Park is the... And that's a really good example too. Is like Brackenridge Park zoo, is, is, the, is the worst from a bacterial perspective. The, the, the bacterial levels in Brackenridge Park are higher than any other part of the main stem of the entire 240 miles of the river. Okay. So right there in Brackenridge Park, you have a bunch of rookeries. Uh, yeah, you have, birds, you know, yeah, yeah cattle yeah. egrets and cormorants and... You have people sitting there feeding the ducks all the time, which again is just, it's unhealthy for the ducks to be fed bread and tortilla chips. And, you know, so that's, that's not a bad thought to have in Brackenridge Park because the water is of pretty poor quality. Um, and in the Riverwalk obviously is, is the same kind of thing that, you know, water's coming from Brackenridge Park into the Riverwalk and the Riverwalk itself obviously has a lot of, of sources of pollution. So those areas certainly are are the largest of concern. And so, yeah, Brackenridge Park, you can see that film on top of the water sometimes. Some parts of the park are just closed off because there's birds and it's just like picnic tables covered in white and yeah. trees just losing all their leaves and they're dead. And so not a bad hunch to go with Brackenridge okay, Park. Is to, <laughs> I feel better about it. To wash but your hands. But yeah. like past that, but going down to that mission reach, like you're saying, right. it's all been redone, restored. Right to an area where you're you're fine obviously depending on weather rain right. or whatever and that, and that's fine stuff that gets blown out but normally it's it's a better stretch it was than it was 10 years ago yeah absolutely ago. Okay. yep is that why there's such a big I feel like more than any other river authority like y'all's concentration on mussels when I went to that event um, and hearing you talk about the mussels is is the water quality like the big driver of freshwater mussels because they're so efficient at um, cleaning water? Yeah, yeah. The 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 big things with with mussels and just like a, a, a quick tangent on like why why do we care about them is is they're the most imperiled group of organisms in the world. So there's 360 species in North America and like. 36% of them are endangered or, ex- or threatened or in- endangered or extinct. And I'll get these numbers wrong a little bit, but it's like 50% or more are threatened or endangered or extinct. There's about a thousand worldwide, a uh, thousand species, and about half of them are either threatened, endangered, or extinct. So they're they're quickly going away. Damming is a big problem with them. Because um, they can't move up. They can't move up yet. And, and we can talk about life history stuff, and this is the this is the getting nerdy part. We can talk yeah, about yeah. Yeah. life history for mussels. But... Um, the, the really cool thing about them is, is they're filter feeders. Yeah. They feed on bacteria. Uh, they help with like uh, nutrient cycling, nutri- nutri- nutrient processes. They filter out algae out of the water. 
So overall, I mean, they're, they're, the other part too is they're good indicators of, of community health because they're filter feeders. If there's a lot of pollutants, they're going to die. They can't swim around and find other places where the pollutants aren't there like fish can to a degree or like with dissolved oxygen drops down. Mussels are stuck there. Fish can swim somewhere else where maybe it's more oxygenated. And so <clears throat> they're really interesting uh, for a number of reasons, but the, the places where they're kind of going away because of pollutant concerns, uh, copper's really, really lethal to them, and so is ammonia. So if you have, like, you're not treating your wastewater very well, you could have ammonia coming out because ammonia coming into a treatment facility is very, very high. And then copper is a concern. So copper is something that's used common, commonly used to treat um, algae. You guys might have talked about, like, water hyacinth before, those kinds of things, like any sort of aquatic vegetation that people want to get rid of, they'll use copper a lot of times, and that is very, very toxic to freshwater mussels. And so, mm. um, you know, if, if, if somebody's trying to apply algicide into one of their, into like a pond or something like that, because you'll find mussels all over the place, and somebody wants to treat algae, then they can treat the algae, they might find dead mussels because that's something that's really toxic for them. So, so what you're saying, as opposed to treating the algae with, you know, that type of thing, put some mussels in your pond. You can put some mussels in your pond. Yeah, there's a there's a few species that are very specifically adapted for slow moving waters. There's some that are adapted for quicker moving waters and, and different substrate types. Some like sand, some like mud, some like rocks and gravel and, and kind of boulders. And um, but I mean, it's a it's such a cool species, it's such a cool group of organisms, group of animals. That again, I it, it's tough too because it's not you can't go f- you can't go you know throw a line in the water and catch a freshwater mussel. You right. can like throw a line and catch a largemouth bass and be like, I want more largemouth bass here. Right. I want more Guadalupe bass here. I want more, you know, your, whatever your favorite target fish is. You can't go fishing for freshwater mussels and, and make the, this super exciting day for people. So it's a hard, <laughs> harder to make that visceral connection for people with mussels. So like, you know, the day land and you're out at the river symposium, like getting people to t- touch this thing, touch this animal. It looks like a rock, just touch this living animal you can hold in your hand. And it makes more of a connection with people. And, we get little kids that would be like, oh, my God, this mom, dad, this is so cool that, that this thing is here. This is, it's, I can't believe this is an animal. And so seeing that and having that visceral reaction from kids is really, really cool because it just helps people connect to that, 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 hey, this is another animal in our basin that is worth saving and worth doing something for. Um, that is just, again, even for me, when I first started here, background in, in saltwater, a little bit of freshwater work overseas, and, and then being here is like I never even – consciously thought of freshwater mussels and all of a sudden it's a you know big part of of my career so it's yeah. been interesting yeah man bring the problem to people's faces yeah right, really yeah, that's it it's like yeah like dog adoptions and cat adoptions bring them to you yeah, you know right. yeah if you bring the mussels out and show them to people like you said yeah. like people get excited about it are um are zebra mussels a concern for the san Antonio river authority they are uh they're so they're in they're in canyon lake and medina lake right now both of those are considered fully infested uh medina diversion lake what is, is what, what does fully infested mean so fully infested means that there's basically all life stages of those of zebra mussels they're they're demonstrating active reproduction which mm-hmm. means that they're just you know it's not like you found you found one on a dock or on the bottom of a boat it is you found you found multiple generations of zebra mussels is what's considered an infested lake. And these are getting moved to the lakes because people are taking their boat out to Lake A, yep. and then there's zebra mussels attaching to the boat, and then yeah. they're moving to Medina Lake, and those zebra mussels are exactly yeah 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 they you know we want to go to Canyon Lake and we're gonna fill up our live well with a bunch of bait. And then you know what? This isn't working out this morning. Let's go do some nighttime fishing over Medina, and they keep the live well running, or, or they, you know, they don't they don't empty out the bilge pump the way that they should, or you know, the the message from Parks Wildlife is clean, drain, dry your boat, um, you know, clean it out, drain it, and just let it sit and let it completely dry. 
there are ways if you wanted to go from one lake to the next in a single day, you know, it's like a certain temperature of water and soapy water. And, um, it's much more difficult on that and to ensure you're getting all those out of there. So when in doubt, clean, drain, dry your boat, kayak, canoe, you know, outboard, inboard, jet ski, whatever you got, yeah. try to let it sit before yeah. you go from yeah, one to the next. I was think about that with like even paddle boards and yep. And a lot of times you can't actually see the muscles, Correct. right? They can be pretty, yep. pretty microscopic. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time they're called the, the larval form is called a veliger. Uh-huh. So, uh, if they're, you know, these veligers are, are, you know, the grain of uh, a grain of salt um right. so and then smaller than like a midge would you, like even a midge would yeah be, yeah right? it would be yeah very very small uh you know it's a bit planktonic at that point in time and you look at it under a microscope and it takes probably they have a, a spawning season in end of spring beginning of summer so like april to june and they just finish up their last one from something like september to november beginning of november um, that's the most susceptible time it takes about two to four weeks to get the, about the size of a grain of rice maybe. And you start being able to see those a little bit more, but again, that, you know, two to four weeks, they're spawning for three months right. and you're moving in those times of year when people are mostly out fishing. Uh, during that time, yeah. It's yeah. not the middle of the summer. It's, yeah. you know, kind of nicer spring weather, nicer fall weather. So yeah, they're, they're, they're really bad. And, and Medina Lake, they're fully infested. Medina Diversion Lake is basically where like the lake turns back into a river. There's a little dam there, but it's a riverine kind of environment. It's a deeper but they're in Medina Diversion Lake, so unfortunately, it's a matter of when, not if, we detect them in the in Medina River and then in San Antonio proper. But we can still prevent them from getting to Bronick and getting to Calaveras. We can still prevent them from getting to the Mission Reach and, and the River Walk. And again, so anytime we can, clean, drain, dry your boat. Just try not to take the same vessel into two different bodies of water in one day. Um, obviously, it's a lot easier to do that with a canoe. You're just you know hosing down the outside, making sure it's dry, using towels, whatever you can. It's a lot harder with a you know an outboard motor to make sure every drop of water is out of there because right, yeah. again, it, one drop can seriously one drop can infest a lake and it you you know doesn't seem reasonable, but it you can yeah. have a hundred yeah. things and you know a hundred of these animals in, a, in an ounce of water, and so it, right. it it's really really easy to spread them. So a couple minutes ago, you talked about the life cycle of a mussel. Will you run us through that? Yeah, for sure. Um, there. They're called obligate parasites. So they have to, in order to complete their life cycle, they have to parasitize a fish for the most part. There's some that are like, sal- you know, some can parasitize a salamander. So what they do is... Now, is this just zebra mussels or all mussels? This is this is just freshwater mussels. Okay. Called, there's a family called Unionidae. So so whenever I say like native freshwater mussels, zebra mussels are, are different. Zebra mussels don't have to go through this stage, which is why they're so... They're so prolific is right, because they're easier to reproduce. They're what much easier to reproduce. They don't have to go through this parasitic life cycle. Um, so those the the zebra mussels and you'll start hearing more about called quagga mussels. They're over in Amistad right now. They just got found in the first lake in oh, Texas is Amistad. Very similar to zebra mussels, but really really bad for the ecosystem. So, time pause. So they got yeah. found in the, the first place it got found in is Texas. Amistad. Yeah. So how do we take a mussel that hasn't been seen anywhere else and then it's all of a sudden in the middle of the state, in a yeah. lake in the middle of the state? Yeah. So it would be somebody bringing, bringing a boat down from a difference because they are in different parts of the country. So it would be somebody doing that same thing of, you know, you know understanding boats and you could, you could have something in a bilge pump for a week. And so it's somebody taking it from a lake, gotcha. an infested lake, a so couple states over. they didn't fully over. drain their boat even exactly. though they drove basically yep. – Texas is a con- is bigger than other countries, yes. so and they basically drove their vehicle across a country, and 
didn't have it fully drained for Correct. whatever reason yep. and dropped it in the lake. Yeah, and, and my wife and I went on a, on a road trip this summer. We went up to Idaho and then made our way back to, like, Montana, Wyoming, northern Colorado. They and had boat, forced boat stops. Boat checks, yep, all over the place. Oh, yeah. they really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 As, soon as, as soon as you go into, you know, you're going from Wyoming to Montana, the f- you know, the first couple of miles, there's a thing, mandatory vessel check. And so if you have anything, if you have a, a Zodiac, if you have – you have a kayak, a canoe, you have something, a you, raft, yeah, a drift anything at all. You, you stop at that stop. check. They check you for zebra mussels, quagga mussels. They check you. They have a lot of uh, uh, invasive aquatic plants that they have a problem with. And so you're checked and they make sure that your your boat's dried out and you've, you're doing the proper things. And yeah. so it, Do we have anything, any system like that in Texas? We don't, no. Uh, Parks and Wildlife will do some informational things at boat ramps for people. Saying, you know, if they're out doing like a creel survey, an angler survey, hey, what'd you catch today? This and this, where, you know, what's your plan the rest of the day? What's your plan the rest of the week? You're going to take your boat somewhere. Do you know, you know, know the steps to make sure your boat's dried out? And, but there's or nothing education. that's like mandatory checks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, which, you know, how many anglers realistically are you getting by doing that? And it's a, it's a fraction. It's better than zero, but it's a, you know. But it's still not the main issue. Right. Yeah, we're going to solve the main issue. Yeah. That's so. a huge task though. Those boat stations oh, man. they pay oh, a bet. lot of money for that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean how and you mentioned it to the size. You know, Montana's a good a good example too, because obviously that's a giant state as well. Right. There's also just a lot less people in that state and, and um so if you know you're in Texas, think about all the places you can come into Texas from all the different, you know, bodies of water that we've created throughout the state where you can go to. So the it's just this monumental lift. I mean it's not to for parks and have to do that, it'd be you'd have to add you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new employees right. to be able to do that. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's a, that's a big lift. And so it, 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 that's one of those things that is, you know, there's no other way to put it that is on us as individuals and on us as, cause yeah. the people that are doing this, people who value, there's no way to pull it off in Texas. Yeah. Just thinking about the scale and how right. they do it. And there. the number of water um, bodies we have. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it, it's again, that that's something that's incumbent upon us as people that love these natural resources because it's not somebody who's sitting at home on a Saturday doing this. It's somebody who's taking their boat from Canyon to Medina or from, you know, name your lake to a, a zebra mussel negative lake. You know, Calaveras and Braunig are still negative lakes, and uh, hopefully it stays that way. But none of that CPS is doing a lot of preparation right now because it costs, I mean, it costs millions and millions and millions of dollars to retrofit equipment because they'll, zebra mussels will just stick to the inside of like a water intake pump. And you have this 48-inch diameter pipe that all of a sudden has a six-inch diameter because it's just so clogged. I mean, there's these wild photos online of zebra mussels clogging intake pipes for power stations or, or hydro dams. And, I mean, it's such a destructive thing. It's, you know, this thing that's an inch long that can completely destroy the ecosystem in a lake. Even muscle, zebra mussels in general don't get big. Yeah, yeah right? very, very small. And they'll just get everywhere. And you get some of these areas where, you know, all of a sudden it's this, this, this beach people liked being on with like gravel bottom. And all of a sudden there's like these razor sharp zebra mussels in the bottom and you can't swim there anymore. And the, the water's getting too clear. So some of the, um, bottom, yeah, some of the natural coverage way, the bottom vegetation can explode. It can deplete oxygen. It can kill fish. So it's just this huge cascading effect throughout the ecosystem. So zebra mussels very, very bad. The, so, you know, talk about mussels like the, again, the native ones are called union again, family union today is the family of freshwater mussels. So their life cycle is really cool. They, they're, they're broadcast spawners, just like a lot of fish species. So what they'll do is, uh, you know, you have a, a, a female mussel on, on the bed and you have a male mussel on the bed. Uh, the male will broadcast sperm into the water column. The female will, will filter that out through her body, fertilize the eggs 
Uh, really, there's really cool studies about some females will have like genetic diversity from like 30 or 40 males, uh, which really helps genetic diversity overall. Right. Uh, so that's a you know, really, really healthy good population. thing. Healthy population, exactly. She'll, she'll have those fertilized eggs in her. She actually has these pouches on her gills that get in, get, kind of get inflated with uh, developing called glochidia. Glochidia is the larval form of a freshwater mussel. Their gills will get bigger. The, the other wild thing is um, mussels don't have eyes. They can't see what's around them, but they develop these things called mantle lures that look exactly like uh, a shiner or look exactly like some sort of darter or look exactly like black fly larvae. And they look, again, identical to these other animals that would be like a prey source. So say, for instance, um, a lot of our species don't do it because our water is more turbid. But if you look in like that Alabama, Appalachia kind of area, um, there's some that uh, have these lures that are out in the water and they're looking like fish and they're like moving a tail. So they're actually moving it. So it looks like a fish is moving. And the host fish for this muscle might be a bass. Well, the bass is going to come up and think that this is a lure and attack it. And whenever they attack it, it bursts the gill. And all these glochidia come out into the water. They go into the bass's mouth and they can actually attach to the gills. And so no way. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a guy named Chris Barnhart. He works at Missouri State University. And he's got this really cool website. And it's like this this rabbit hole of videos you can get into. Some of them will actually, there's a... a, a what was his last name again? Barnhart. Barnhart. Art. There's a. There's, they have funny names. There's a muscle called a snuff box, and this muscle will will lay in lay in the bottom and open up it open up its shell a little bit and kind of kind of uh, advertise this lure. And this darter will come up to it, and the muscle will clamp down on the darter's nose, so the darter can't move, and it'll just pump this glochidia onto the darter's face. It gets in the gills, and the muscle just releases the darter. The darter looks all you know, disoriented, but it swims off and. Very rarely is it lethal for fish. I was um, going to ask, yeah. is it lethal or is yeah. it, you know, nope. and, and how long are these, are you calling glochidia? Glochidia, yeah. So there, it, it ranges from about four weeks to 12 weeks. Okay. Um, but it's a really cool, again, that Barnhart website has a really bunch of really cool things. So that it, it looks like when this glochidia comes out, it looks like Pac-Man. Uh-huh. And it's like Pac-Man can only close his mouth one time. Right. So Pac-Man will, will close its mouth onto gills or fins or some sort of soft tissue there's even some you can see like, you know, kind of like on the, on the operculum, the, you know, the, the fish's cheeks, gill coverings. Uh, there's some like around the eyes of some of these species where you'll just see a couple of small glochidia and they don't, they don't live uh, on the fish long enough to be detrimental. So it's not like they're bursting the gills and they're taking all of the nutrients from a right. fish. Um, we've had some issues whenever we do propagation because we're they're, they're, they're in a concentrated bath of glochidia with our host fish where they can get too infested. So we've had to adjust our timing. Like how long do we expose a host fish to a bath of glochidia before we, it's going to be too much and that can be detrimental. So you have to kind of rotate these host fish yeah. if they, they can get too much. Yeah, for sure. But in the wild, it is exceedingly rare that that would happen in the wild, but it's just a, it's such a remarkable life cycle. So the way that mussels migrate is if you have a, if you have like, so the species we're reintroducing are yellow sand shell, and they, they're, they're host fishes gar species. So spotted gar, long-nosed gar, alligator gar. Um, we have pimpleback. Um, that one goes to channel catfish. We have three, I always get the three ridge and pistol grip back and mixed up a little bit. One of them's flathead catfish and one of them is sunfish species. So if you had yellow sand shell glochidia on a gar, that gar can go upstream 50 miles in, you know, four or five weeks. Right. So that's how they migrate. They don't migrate by moving themselves they're on a host fish. That host fish goes upstream. 
then they can recolonize an area, which is why we want more fish passage because downstream of Otia Dam, the dam we talked about removing, mm-hmm. there's a really healthy population of mussels. So if we make fish passage possible, then uh, an infested yeah. fish can come upstream and mussels can move upstream with that fish. And, and so it's just encouraging a, that natural growth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just all it is is just a connection of a system. That connection of a system has so many connections. You just don't think, oh, this is why this is important, and that's another good reason. And they're considered a parasite because they don't provide anything beneficial right. for the fish. They're exactly. just leeching off the fish for a certain amount of time. Right. And yep. Exactly. Catching yeah. a free ride. Catching a free ride. Home. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, they get their they get their meals paid for by the fish. Everything's taken yeah. care of. It's lodging's taken care of for six <laughs> weeks. And then they go upstream and they drop off somewhere. And then hopefully that, ju- you know, it drops off as a juvenile. And from that point, it's it's a, it's a you know, a, a free living animal. And it'll grow up. And we have we have one species in our base called a washboard. And they get the size of like a, a, a dinner plate. I mean, oh, they're like this giant really? species. Yeah, yeah we've... We had one that we were, were doing some work on, and, and we had to sacrifice the animal to do some research on it. Opened it up, and this thing in there was like this giant chicken breast inside of this, 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 the muscle, the actual muscle inside of the shell was like this just huge animal. It's so cool to see, and you pick it up, and, you know, it's just like remarkable. You're digging through the sand and the mud, and all of a sudden you feel something, and you pick it up, and you're like holding it with both hands because it's this dinner plate-sized muscle, and it's such a cool species. Again, I never like – I didn't – do this stuff to get into freshwater mussels but now that i've kind of learned about it it's just a visceral connection and that's one thing kind of curious with with you guys is you guys are obviously you talked a lot of folks kind of in you know in this career field and you're you're obviously avid outdoors folks but i mean it's like have freshwater mussels ever come across y'all's radar before outside of zebra mussels um i can't say yeah we've yeah yeah, uh more so oysters recently yeah going oysters yeah cool yeah um but uh, but not necessarily. Not for no. My really first introduction was at y'all San Antonio River Authority event. Mm. Same thing with the apple snails, which is yeah. something else I yeah. want to talk to. But I want to make right. sure we fully cover the fun yeah. life of mussels. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's those little things that you don't really pay attention to. As you know, sometimes we're just fishing. We're looking for you know cichlids and stuff like yeah. that. But that having something that is a source of the healthiness of a stretch of river yeah. is. is Neat. Yeah. And you, you mentioned too, Gabe, you talked about where you were fishing the other day and where Landon was a few weeks ago is that Confluence Park, that, that, uh, that canoe shoot you were standing on, the pool upstream of that was actually one of our study sites for that muscle, muscle survivability study we did. So that was one of our research pools that we were looking at muscles over the course of three years to see how quickly they were growing. And it's, you know, I, I will take buddies down there kayaking and my wife and I live, live right in downtown and we have a couple of kayaks, a couple of paddle boards. And so we'll go paddle the missionary each and I always bring some friends out there with us. And I always bring a key because one of them is like a cage. You unlock the top and open it up and there's muscles in there. And I'll take buddies out there that have been on the river in Cibolo Creek or down in the, down on the coast for a long time and like pop it open. And, you know, these guys are my age, you know, 37, 38 years old. And, and they'll, they'll be like, oh my, it's so cool. And it's like, again, it's that, these guys who, who have been outdoors or been fishing at the coast for their, you know, for their whole, you know, for their whole adult lives and fishing in freshwater systems for their whole, you know, whole, you know, childhood. And all of a sudden it's like this, this really cool visceral connection. And so every time we go out there kayaking, I always throw that, throw that key in my, in my dry bag to make sure that let's open this thing up and take a second and, uh, you know, look at this muscle and kind of sit there and maybe have a beer while we're checking this thing out and and seeing what these animals are. Cause it's just, you realize like, Oh, this is a, this is a living functioning river and again you guys understand that from a fishing perspective that this isn't some sterile river you can go out there and catch fish and good fish and big fish and different species and but then you kind of like start looking at more and more of those stories like oh this is a fully functioning ecosystem 
that is in the heart of San Antonio. It's, I mean, it's right there. It's, you know, the, the mission reach starts in downtown basically. And, and I think that's just a, such a cool story to connect people to. And, um, that's why I, I really appreciate you guys, you know, having me come on and talk to you guys. Cause I think it's a, just a fun story to tell people, especially people that are interested in the outdoors. Yeah. Do you have to really look for them or if you, and what I mean by this is like, it's kind of like if it's not pointed out to you, you don't know that they're there. So there's nothing to look for. But if I was to go down to the San Antonio river and just like look a little more closely, would I start seeing muscles in the water? It's not, um, it's not very visual for us again because typically we have you know more turbid water uh we're in that gulf coast slope so we have um again just murkier water but if you're ever in um mostly if you're like from the floresville down if you're kayaking on the san antonio medina river has pretty good population Cibola creek is pretty decent if you're just kind of like a mixture of maybe sand silt gravel kind of areas and if you just kind of start feeling around in the in the bottom of the river, yeah, there's a decent chance that that you'll pull something out. And again, it depends on where you are. Right now, in the Mission Reach, you know, there's there's a couple there's two species that are living in that general area right now. They're not part of the reintroduction process. They've been in these little remnant channels around, so you'll find some stuff, but it's very rare. But a little bit lower in the basin, Medina River, Cibolo Creek, you'll start finding some stuff. Okay. And this is in every every basin in Texas, and. If you go to like uh, out by Gonzalez and the Guadalupe River, they have a really good muscle population. They're less up in hill country streams. Yeah. Uh, very clear water. I don't see any reason why. It's just yeah. Clear water, bedrock bottoms. Typically, like yeah. you think about hill country streams. I mean, you, th- you think about like beautiful rivers. The you know the Devils, the Frio, those kinds of places. Crystal clear water. So there's not a lot of food stuffs in the water form, and it's also crystal clear because it's usually bedrock. So there's just no place for them to burrow into the sediment. So it does typically, you know, it does tend to be a little bit more turbid water in Texas. Now, again, you go, I keep referencing like Ohio and Alabama and Tennessee. Uh, Clinch River is a great example. And Tennessee is, is you know, sometimes there's a you know, pretty clear water in that area. And you also have really, really healthy muscle populations. And there's some of those basins have like 50, 60 mussel species. We have 13 or 14 in our basin that we've found. Wow. Um, okay. But, yeah, so it, it's certainly something that, um, you know, we hope give us four or five years, we hope that that's an experience that people in the mission reach can have on a more regular basis. That's our time frame for getting adult mussels out there. We're hoping to do our first stockings in uh, 23, 24 time frame, uh, 2023, 2024 time frame. How long does it take uh, for a mussel to reach maturity? It all depends on species. Uh, the ones we're looking at are anywhere between three and five years, okay. give or take. Um, so like the ones we're in- introducing, pimpleback is an interesting it's a terrible name for a muscle, by the way, but <laughs> it used to be called the golden orb and then it got changed to pimpleback, which is a, just a, I mean, for the name change, that's a really big step back from <laughs> golden orb is like this magical sounding <laughs> right. animal to the pimpleback. Uh, but that was actually a, a federal candidate species for listing bunch of genetic work. It got lumped in with other, other species. And so uh, now it's off the candidate species list. Um, it's a, it's species greatest conservation need in Texas though. But those are those are fairly small, maybe a couple inches, two or three inches, and those those will reach maturity in about three years. We have some like yellow sand shell, uh, pistol grip, and, and three inch can get pretty big, and those take about four or so years to get to sexual maturity. Pretty and big, like eight to ten inches, or the uh, so the three ridge is, would be the biggest. We we found a yellow sand shell that's probably, man, probably like six inches across. Okay. Yeah, that one's much more of like a, a football shape kind of an oval shape. Uh, the three ridge is rounder. 
that one gets a lot heavier. It's interesting because like some of the shells are really heavy and dense and some of the shells are very, there's one called a paper pond shell. So you think paper, it's a very, very, very thin. thin shell. So it, it, each species is really interesting. They're, they're beautiful little animals. I mean, just the coloration on the shells. Pistol grip, whenever they're young, can be like this green kind of color. There's a one called a rock pocketbook that's like this turquoise blue color whenever they're younger, and they're kind of like these little horns on the tip of them. I mean, it's just really, really cool animals. And um, So, yeah, I mean, anytime uh, you're out there fishing in some of these areas, keep your eyes in the banks, too. There's a, a lot of times because, you know, this these shells don't go away whenever these animals die. You know, these animals die if they're of old age or a raccoon's gotten to them. Those shells are still there. And so there's anytime you see someone on the bank, it's just kind of interesting to check it out, pick okay. it up, and take a look at it. Well, yeah. to, have, to have Nick on and now you on, it's definitely, especially – going out last Friday and having Nick on to look yeah. at stuff and that I just wouldn't have paid attention yeah. to. Yeah, right. we had Nick Loveland on last week, and he talked about microfish. Yeah, that's you awesome. Know. Yeah, it was really interesting, too. Something that anglers don't really think about because yeah. they're not catching them. Right. But when you're intentional about it, it kind of changes everything. Yeah. Did you, the, the, to tangent into the microfishing thing, is, th- is that something you guys have ever done? We've not. I am interested in doing it after talking <laughs> so, with him. So I, I bought, I got the kid a... Um, uh, a uh, no, four no, foot you bought yourself, but go on. <laughs> is a four foot Tinkara <laughs> rod. Uh, so I'm blaming the kid that it's hers. Um, you know what Tinkara is? Uh, I do not know what that is, but so it, it's it's a traditional Japanese style of fly fishing, but without the reel and line. The line attaches to the tip of oh, the cool. rod rather than like think about cane pole fishing. Oh, that's awesome! But it's Japanese. a telescoping, the telescoping. Yeah, um, that's really cool. So we got a four foot one. So, yeah, so it's definitely for you. Go on, right? Yeah. And um, <laughs> so she 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 wanted to go out. Um, you know, she sees me tie, so you know she's she's gotten into that a little bit in, in, in looking at. She just turned seven in August, so we took her out to to uh, Brackenridge Park because I knew of some spots. I'm like, hey, look, you know, and and that's the nice thing about this is you don't have a reel that you're worried about the s- the amount of line you have out line control is out of the picture now so it's really just you take it back and you cast it forward super easy and she got into um some re- uh, uh cichlids or um rios right she got into Your some rio grand cichlids yeah uh and some smaller bluegills but when i guess it's one of those things like when we're going fishing i'm sure the three of us like we're kind of looking for some of the bigger ones we're, we're you know we're going after big stuff so when we found like a little spot that had just hundreds of these small minnows that i probably just would have walked over but after you know after having that conversation with nick uh was like okay cool let's look at this and she was having just as much fun throwing a i think we had like a size 18 um pheasant tail or something else on she's just <laughs> that thing down there and these things are hitting it and yeah. pulling on it and stuff and so she's having fun but again these are things like i would have just easily stepped over yeah. and here my seven year old's having a great time right. she didn't care what size you know and she's like oh that's a cool fish too but you know these are just hitting and i'll just watch them um and just those little things of, of paying attention to the stuff that's around you that again from a, from a fly tying perspective going okay if i have stuff those are perfect bait fish for, you know, this is how I would tie it, or if, you know, if I want to do some clousers or whatever. gives you a better sense of what those larger fish are probably going to be eating in those areas yeah. and what you would need to tie for. Yeah, um, cool. But, yeah, no, she she had fun, and it was, and it was again, with not having Nick on, I would have said, okay, those are cool, and just walked yeah. right, right past it. But now I'm like, man, I kind of want to cast catch, catch <laughs> right. one now yeah, and, and start this life list of, of species. Yeah, that's yeah. really you know, cool. Uh, now that Nick has, what, like 35 of the 200 and something, I want to get my numbers up there. Yeah. 
So yeah, it's cool. So what's the deal with apple snails? Which is something I talked with Austin a lot when yeah. I was at that event, and I made a video on it uh, that did pretty well nice. on social media of him talking about apple snails. So what what is the deal with those? Yeah, apple snails are, are the the poster child for don't dump your aquarium into the river. Uh, a lot of times you're like plecos or armored catfish, the same thing. People buy these these aquarium animals whenever they're small, and they buy an apple snail when it's the size of a quarter, and then. Six weeks, three months later, this thing's the size of an apple. Uh, you know, hence the name is all of a sudden, this thing's way too big for my tank, and I don't want to kill, you know, my snail that I've had and my, my pet, so I'm just going to let it have a free life in the river for let it live its existence out there. People just toss it in the river, and all of a sudden you have, you know, another invasive species. And so apple snails were first seen in October 2020. We got a report from a city of San Antonio worker. Um, they have these, if you've been out in the Riverwalk area any time in the last eight months, you'll probably see these very distinctive bubblegum looking pink egg cases along the sides of the banks. So this is a relatively new. This is, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah a little over two years now. Um, wow. And so they lay these eggs in the banks, very, very obvious in the channelized areas because it's just this flat piece of concrete and all of a sudden there's a bright, splotch of eggs on the side um and then the apple snails so it, it's interesting because like where we are right now um where they are right now is not a huge we're concerned because of where they could go because right now they're in the river walk uh they like eating algae they kind of just like slide along the edges and kind of scrape algae off in the river walk they're not going to do any damage to any sort of plant communities but if they get out of that area they can very quickly like mow down vegetation so it's kind of like the pleco <laughs> like they're there in the river walk they have a you know, strong life, but you don't really see them anywhere else. Yeah. Or are plecos further downstream? Plecos are further downstream, but not in a density. Once you get to a natural area, plecos and tilapia become much, much less common. Gotcha. Um, and I think they just get out-competed by the native species. So they're, gotcha. you know, up in, up in the air where it's channelized, we don't have a lot of algae-eating sucker-type species. You know, we have some that will mess with rocks in the bottom, like central stone rollers will kind of turn over some rocks in the bottom, and some of these other animals will do that, you know, kind of, you know, scraping some of these rocks. Gray red horse will do that kind of same same feeding behavior. But to, like, fully scrape algae, that's... Plecos love that kind of stuff. Right. Why um, leave where it's good? Yeah, exactly. And so they'll be downstream a little bit, but just much, much rarer. So right now, um, you know, think about a problem, a place where, like... Um, um, apple snails can be a problem is if you're looking at San Marcos, there's like Texas wild rice beds. So Texas wild rice is a, is a, you know, endangered plant. Uh, as the name suggests, it's Texas, it's a wild rice and it, it's endemic here. If apple snails got to that area, they would completely destroy that Texas wild rice bed. They would eat that vegetation. They eat the stems of them at the very bottom. And then the rest of that plant just floats off downstream. So our concern is if they start moving farther and farther south, we've seen them as, as far south as Military Drive now, that they could get into some plant communities and start taking away some of that in-stream vegetation, some of that in-stream cover for fish. Um, and so that's our concern. And we've had, we have we have River Warriors, as kind of our volunteer group at the River Authority. So anybody's interested, River, River Warriors at sariverauthority.org is a really cool group to get involved with for any number of things. But our River Warriors have done a tremendous job helping us out with pulling these animals out of the water. And I think in the last, I'm going to get the number wrong again, but in the last two years doing this, we've pulled out about 10,000 adults and about 45,000 egg cases. Whoa. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been in ridiculous. I think it's two years. We saw them for two the first time in October and, and we've pulled out, out 10,000. Yeah, 10,000 adults. And this is, this is almost entirely in uh, Museum Reach, uh, which Museum Reach people just, the Pearl is the Museum Reach area. Yeah. 
uh, Riverwalk proper, which is, you know, the, the main downtown La Villita kind of area, the river barges. And then King William is the stretch right before you get to like Blue Alamo Star. Street, Blue Star. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just in those three stretches that, you know, 99.9% of those animals were pulled out. They are down further in the mission reach. And that's by no means all of the ones we've pulled out. Uh, my wife and I on our kayaking trips, we'll find some and we'll pull out a handful of them in the Is mission Is there a way reach. you recommend pulling them out? Because we were looking mm-hmm. at them and it's the egg casings are... They have a substance on them, or pink bubble gum. Yeah, right. So, it, so the the way the the way it's recommended, and, and we do actually we have it. Our River Warriors is like a training for people. So, if anybody's interested in, in helping out, we do a really quick two or three hour training with our volunteer coordinator, Minapal. Uh, we also have one of our biologists. So, in, you know, we've had Chris Vaughn's done it before, Austin Davis, Chris Edwards, Kaylee Paulson's our newest one of our newest biologists. They've helped out. Um, it's a really cool, quick training course. Get, give you an idea, but basically. You can get like a paint scraper in a bucket or you can get, uh, you know, we have one guy, David Mullen, has been this unbelievable River Warrior volunteer. He's pulled out hundreds and hundreds of adults in egg cases by himself. Um, you know, he'll use like a, a little uh, a dustpan and just kind of scrape up and, and that sticky stuff will get on the dustpan, but you can put it in a bucket. So the one thing we don't want to do is just scrape it off into the water because at a certain part of development, they want to fall into the water. So if they're too developed and you do that, you're just scraping all of the eggs into the water. Gotcha. Um, some of our staff will, will crush them and scrape them in the water because we have kind of trained staff to know how to crush. Them yeah. Then. This is a good time to crush them or this is a time we have to remove them. So you can use again, a paint scraper, some, some flat hard edge to scrape them off of the wall. Um, and then the adults, it's just, you know, pulling them out and there's a disposal methods recommended by parks and wildlife right now. It's take them out and put them in a bag and put that bag in a trash can. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's pretty easy to dispose of the adults. And what you'll see is, you won't see them much anymore. It's getting colder. Uh, so they're going to be at the bottom of the river. They'll kind of, you know, kind of bury themselves in sediment until February, March, depending on what the weather looks like. They'll come back out and then they'll just be all over the place. We have a, a, a data visualization platform that our data management team's worked on. And uh, it's all of the removal. And you can just see this slow ramp up from March and then August, September, it's you know, thousands of months. And then it's right now it's kind of tailing off. So we had our staff out there two weeks ago. We work with a consultant to do a lot of that work for us because it's every 10 days or so we have somebody out there doing removals and we have volunteers helping us. And so it's, <laughs> it's just like this one decision to, to get rid of this pet or a couple of pets in the river. And all of a sudden it's, you know, thousands of dollars and, yeah. you know, tons of, of labor hours. And, you know, this happens all the time is recently we got these two reports of, of a fish called a red belly, red belly paku. It looks like a piranha. It's not a piranha. It's not a predator. But we saw we saw two examples. One was like on I think like two ten fishing club, and one was on um, iNaturalist. And sure enough, it's called a red belly paku. It looks like a piranha again. It's a it's a this is a seed eating fish, so they're not going to you know be you know, predating anything. But it's like that. It's like this thing that was probably bought at the two or three inch size of a small sunfish. All of a sudden, is the size of a um, you know, a medium-sized bass, and somebody can't take this in their tank anymore, and they just go, well, I'm going to go toss it in the river. And, you know, unfortunately, that's how this happens all the time with, again, being in that urban city center. People just think the river will take care of it, and, yeah. and it ends up being a big problem i got a business us. idea. Maybe you guys will uh, support us. Yeah. Um, Bring it. It's called We Kill Your Fish. Yeah. <laughs> if you have an invasive, if you have a fish tank fish that you need to get rid of, and you want us to take it to greener pastures, yeah. we will do it for you. Yeah. And we will tell you 
how wonderful of a life that it's going to have, and you can just rest assured that it will do no environmental harm to any native species. The idea is great. I feel like the branding of We Kill Your Fish <laughs> might scare people off. So saying a name change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just wait, wait, what about We Take Your Fish to Pasture? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We yeah. take your fish to a, to a better yeah. place. To a better yeah. place. Yeah. yeah, and then yeah. they go, what better place? And you go, yeah. we don't answer any questions. We just <laughs> take your fish to a better place. Don't ask, don't tell. There's a, there's, there's a really cool, uh, San Marcos is a really cool program with Parks and Wildlife where they do they do a, uh, a armored catfish placostomous like tournament. Uh-huh. So you go out there and you capture you capture as many as you can. So it's like who captures the most and who captures oh, the man. biggest. And it's easy because there's clear water up there. So it's easy to see these things. You can go out there spear fishing. You can go out there and, oh, nice. and catch however you want to. And uh, we've we've kind of talked about the idea, but it's it's just less practical because of the water clarity in, in the San Antonio is just less. Um, then of course it's always hard anytime you talk about removing a species and disposing of it, Especially no matter how a, humanely. Also in a environment like the pearl. Yeah, for sure. It, what what about something like standing there and people are yeah. eating something and they're <laughs> just bludgeoning? Yeah, and it's for like, sure. Well, but we're doing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's. it's I'm, just, I'm 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 half joking but half serious because other states like Montana have done like bounty fishing bounties for like even right. rainbow trout. Or brown trout trying to get native trout species back. Yep. What about some kind of like bounty system for placostomus and tilapia yep. and, and stuff like that? Or hey, what about the next giveaway? Instead of honey hole hates trash, it's honey, honey hole hates, hates trash plecos. fish. <laughs> oh, <laughs> trash fish. You know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think <laughs> that that works out well. Yeah. Um, Take a picture of you stabbing a pleco, holding your La Gloria margarita, stack of dead fish. Because yeah. that way you can bring in other advertisers yeah. to, yeah. to come exactly. in. Yeah, like, here's yeah. my here's Everybody my tilapia, wins. and here's my La Gloria margarita. We need a we need a trident sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah get somebody on like Hawaiian slings yeah. and spear fishing guns. And, yeah. 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 This is a good business idea. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like it's it's obviously got to a point where those things exist right you know um maybe not this far um where we're at but i never realized that that was a thing and yeah. that's pretty cool to know that that you know that's a thing to go out there and 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 try to dispose of as many of these as you can um yeah and and, and again it's 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 interesting too because you have um i don't know if you guys are running into this being out there is, is people will you ask them what are you what are you looking for tilapia over tilapia, we just did this really cool uh, guy, Robert Turner from UTSA, just did this economic impact study of the missionary fishery on the San Antonio economy, and he estimated about a seven hundred thousand dollar you know fishery economy in the missionary area. So seven hundred thousand dollars being brought into the missionary area for fishing purposes. Whether you're going down there and you're getting a you're getting a cheeseburger from Waterburger before you go fishing, or uh-huh. you're staying at a hotel, or you're buying something at Academy, all that counts as you know economic funds. Yeah, area. exactly. Yeah. Uh, he so he did this these creel surveys, angler surveys, and he found a lot of people go down there and target tilapia and pull them out, and and so you know it's so they uh, take them home or they take them home and eat them. Yeah. Really, yeah. yeah, for sure. So people are targeting that species, and obviously people aren't targeting placostomus, but right. a lot of people. Uh, you mentioned Brackenridge Park earlier. A lot of people in Brackenridge Park will go out there and target tilapia. Um, a lot of people will fly fish for carp. Uh, you know, get some yeah. pretty yeah, big carp in there. Yeah, yeah, so that's a non-native species that we have, and um, so you know a lot of those things are. Carp don't don't have as much of an environmental impact as say like tilapia will. Yeah. Are we seeing that carp really affect the native no. populations? Yeah, it, it's 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 something similar where it's like, what is the ecological role they fill? Um, carp don't really compete against a lot of our species. Right. Um, and well, again, they've been here for like hundred like hundred yeah, twenty yeah, hundred forty years, right? right? Yeah, it's it's um, you know kind of a, a ingrained in the system. Like we have some sunfish species like 
redbreast sunfish is a non-native sunfish uh, because it it's from different different waters. I mean, it's a, a native North American species. But from our perspective, like if we're doing a fish survey, we have these metrics that make you know we do this thing as like a, a kind of a community analysis. A redbreast sunfish is considered a bad fish to catch because it's a, considered a non-native by the state. But for us, it's like it's a sunfish. Right. It's a forage fish for larger you know predators. Uh, Bass can eat them, eat the small ones, and catfish and gar, and so it it, it doesn't have any negative detrimental impacts to the system. And they but can live just with the other sunfish. Yeah. It's not like yeah, it's they're really not out competing. They're yeah. not like more aggressive or anything. A Rio Grande cichlids, as the name suggests, are not are not technically native to the San Antonio. They're not. They're not. You know, they're they're a little bit more of an aggressive species. You know, have some of like the you might see those little cleaned out circles. Their little nests yeah, and like fight off everything. Yeah, that comes in exactly. Air. But you know, they're not going to go chase something down and hunt it. I mean, it's like. You know, they're, they're eating all these other fish species in there. So there's those animals that, that are part of the system that are like, these are benign at, at you know, at, at, at worst and beneficial and at best in some of these, some of these occasions. But then you have some species that are, can be very detrimental and, and we want to mitigate the impact so that we don't see something. In it. And just because, just because you don't see any impacts today doesn't mean they're not going to be. There's right. kind of the, the other end of that is there's a, there's a conservationist from like the 1920s. It was Rosalie Barrow Edge, and she was a, a very early uh, women's voting rights uh, advocate. She was very big on the conservation side for birds for a long time. And she had this really cool quote that I love to use. It's like, the time for conservation is when a species is still common. So like, if you can take care of things while things are going well, you don't have to go to these extreme measures of scraping apple snails off the side if you just kept them out at the very beginning. You don't have to do reintroduction efforts if you kept mussels in the river at the very beginning. So, you know, just because, oh, well, there's largemouth bass everywhere. Well, like, let's not take those things for granted. Let's, let's, let's make sure that we can continue to look at those things and say, this is common today, but how can we ensure that it's going to propagate into the future for people to catch? And you talk about, talk about your daughter going out there and fishing. Like that's, that's a connection for people. You don't want her to go 30 years from now. Like, Hey, I remember when I was fishing this with my dad, now there's no fish here. Now there's no, you know, the system isn't healthy. And so I think it's all these things are good to talk about and it's good to talk about recovery efforts, but like keeping things healthy is, is the easiest way to conserve things. It, it costs less money to do things when things are common. It costs less money to do things when there's no problems as opposed to trying to mitigate impacts that we've seen before. And um, so I think that's always an interesting kind of conversation to bring up because all of these really big conservation restoration efforts get, get the front pages. And as they you know, re- realistically should, reasonably should, because there it's a lot of public investment, it's a lot of time, a lot of effort. But some of the kind of smaller things that help maintain healthy systems kind of get pushed aside. But like, you know, saving a ton of money, it's allowing for some of the oxygen to go to some of these other restoration projects, some of these other conservation projects. So, um, you know, I think it's always going to talk about the interesting projects, but then talk about the species you see a lot that are just as important as the unique one that you don't see as often. So um, kind of a tangent there maybe, but would you, you said people were pulling out tilapia out of the river and eating them. Is that something that you would recommend? Yeah. The, the, that's a, a big misconception we get to is that that's unhealthy. There's, there's one, we have one water body in our system that is, that has a fish consumption advisory. That's Leon Creek. So really, yeah, the Leon okay. Creek. Yeah. So safe uh, to fish though. Cause I do fish, you know, that safe to area. fish. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Safe to fish. Just, uh, not, not, not considered safe to eat by the state. So the department of state health services, there is a fish consumption advisory for Leon Creek. It's really, it's the lower part of Leon Creek, but okay. it's really like, it's the lower part, but Kelly air force base area and up. Um, 
that's or Kelly Air Force Base area and down is where the advisory is, and upstream of that is pretty close to going dry. Yeah, I would um, say like I fish pockets because yeah. that's how it happens. Yeah, you know? for sure. So again, perfectly safe to fish, but my recommendation is this if you catch a fish out of Leon Creek, just don't eat it. Um, there's a, a, a fish consumption advisor for PCBs. And then recently, Depart- Department of State Health Services did a study in Leon Creek for PFOS called Forever Chemicals. Um, you might you might have heard this about like uh, nonstick pans, Teflon pans. Yeah. Those are called Forever Chemicals. The, they, they degrade so slow, it's not even a reasonable time scale for humans to think of. It's like 50,000 years and these things will degrade. So they're called Forever Chemicals. They're carcinogens. Um, both of those, PCBs and PFAS, PFOS, were considered to be above the safe threshold for consumption in Leon Creek. Now, we've done these kinds of studies in the San Antonio, the Medina, the Cibolo, and all of the stuff's come back healthy there. Even the, like in Breckerage? Yeah, even in Breckerage. Because okay. the thing you think about, too, is the things that will get in fish tissues are different than things that might make water quality bad for us. So, like, if 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 we swallow... If we swallow a cup of Brackenridge water and we get E. coli in our systems, we're going to have some stomach problems, but our, our muscles and our tissues are fine. We're not going to keep it in our fat. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, we're not does, storing right? it in exact, exactly yet. So a fish will do the same thing. Like those kinds of pollutants, a fish will not store E. coli pollution in its tissues or, or nitrate pollution in its tissues. It will heavy metals. It will right. PFAS mercury, or PCBs. Right? That's a big one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the, lot of the saltwater species have yeah. big mercury problems. So there's not a concern with a lot of the pollutants that we look at more often there is more of a, you know, increasing awareness of things like PFOS. Uh, there's an EPA has a, ro- a PFOS roadmap of trying to develop a more robust understanding of what's the pollution levels of PFOS in our surface waters, because this is not something we've ever really studied before. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, a lot of these things are associated with like Air Force bases because it's a re- PFOS are really common in firefighting foams. Um, so yeah, you might like seeing some you know, older movies where there's like a big, you know, there's a, a fire on this big plane and they'll put it out with all this foam. Um, that firefighter foam had all of these forever chemicals. And so like they would always do these test drills at Lackland and Kelly Air Force Base on Leon Creek. That foam would get into the water system and now it's... Wow. That's why it's so high. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And there's, like you said, they're forever chemicals. There's yeah. nothing we can do. Yeah, they're, there's, they're looking at some... They're just now getting methods that can destroy those chemicals in a lab setting. Right. But I mean, are they safe for the environment? Yeah. Yeah, it's like repercussions? yeah. yeah. For sure. What's Let's kill the chemicals with more chemicals. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That That'll be fine. <laughs> the next generation can deal with what this problem they can is. Yeah. They can that one. Yeah, for sure. It'll come along and make things better. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're working on ways to, to, to affect that. The thing that's impacting us right now, as we talked about, we have a utility system. So if, if you bring in, you think about, you know, okay, so what, what is, what's nonstick surface very common? And it's very common in your skillets and your yeah. pans at home. And so you're cooking, you're cleaning, you're, you're, you're doing your dishes and you're using this, the pan. You know, we have a pan that my wife and I, it's just the two of us. We have this one big skillet we use for almost every single meal. And after two or three years, we got to kind of replace it because it starts to get, you know, a little bit, you know, wear and tear on it. That stuff goes in the system, goes in the drain. That ultimately makes it to our treatment facilities. And so... Uh, one of the questions too is like, who owns that chemical pollutant? Because that's not, you know, us, my wife and I doing our dishes at home, we're not putting that PFAS into the river. We're putting it into a waste stream that then goes to this treatment plant and that treatment plant then puts it into the river. So who owns that pollutant is a, is a big concern right now is do we as the river authority, because we're treating water from homes, do we own that pollutant or is that something that 
we can't do anything about because we can't treat that right now. So there's a lot of conversations around PFAS at a national level, at a state level of interesting. how do you manage, how do you monitor, how do you maintain? Right. Um, that's that's a, a big question that realistically is you know probably years away. The other thing too is like everything else, the uh, political winds change these kinds of things. And again, love him or hate him, either one of them, uh, Biden and Trump had very different approaches from an environmental perspective, again, you can think whatever side of the aisle you want to on that, but just that's just the fact is that they felt differently about environmental things. So in 2024, if if there's a Republican that takes over again, they're probably going to change some of those environmental policies, and that might slow down this PFOS roadmap. It might slow down the, some of the uh, oversight of those chemicals. Again, what, however you feel about that, that's just a reality. If somebody, if, say, Biden stays in the office, in the, the, the White House, or another Democrat comes in, those will probably stay on that fast track and then we might have to deal with those sooner. So that's right. just some interesting political realities from a treatment perspective for our utilities groups. Right. So probably a direction we didn't think we'd go this evening. No. Huh? No, but I mean, like, <laughs> it's interesting. Like, yeah, like I said, we can get we can get into it. Now, yeah. there's some areas of the San Antonio River you can't wade. Yeah, that, that's another really – All I feel like there, I haven't given you guys one clean answer the entire night. It's always yeah. these like this web yeah, of that connections. Was, that was part of the deal whenever I was uh, was fishing because I think I saw some signs that said you couldn't wade. Yeah, the, the, the only area of the San Antonio River where it is, where it is illegal to swim is in the San Antonio city limits. That ordinance was put into place by the city of San Antonio in the 70s, and that was done from a – excuse me, from a, a, a physical safety perspective. So, you know, think about um, downtown San Antonio is very flashy. So if we have a big rain event, that water rises very, very quickly and then it, and it goes down very, very quickly. Well, if you're in the water swimming, that's physically safe, unsafe for you. It's physically, the water's going to push oh. you out of town. Uh, it, there might be, it might be too deep in this area. You might, you might not be a strong swimmer. There's liability. Th- so there's all those things. So that, that ordinance was created as it from a physical Safety perspective is not, not created are physically exactly. In the water. Yes, yeah, it's literally the water itself. Yes, yeah, okay. not not the water. The water quality was no part of that ordinance. But you can be on a kayak or you on can, some kind of. Water you can be craft. on a kayak. Yeah, you can be on a kayak. You can be on a paddleboard. Um, you can again. You can swim in any of the water bodies. If you're not in the city of San Antonio, it is not illegal to swim. Now there is. Air, there are areas of, of different creeks and streams where there is an impairment for bacteria. Like, for instance, we talked about Brackenridge Park. We talked about, you know, some of the Mission Reach part of the, the Riverwalk where there is a there is an impairment for bacteria that the TC... So we collect data under what's called the Clean Rivers Program. We submit that data to TCEQ, and every two years, they basically do this big report of water quality throughout the state. That that leads to things called impairments, but an impairment is not a legally binding thing. So if like if 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 you guys were out fishing in Carnes County in a body part of the river that has an impairment for bacteria and you were swimming, a game warden or some person couldn't come up to you and say, "Hey, there's an impairment here. You're doing something illegal by swimming here." It's just basically a a a monitoring thing for what is the quality of this river. It has no legally binding thing. It's just an observation. Uh, part of the Clean Water Act, the EPA delegated the monitoring surface water monitoring to states so tcq oversees that for the for texas we're a partner in the clean rivers program which we're a partner and most of other river authorities are also partners in the clean rivers program we monitor the water quality we send the data to tcq tcq puts together what's called an integrated report of water quality assessments and then tcq sends that to epa for approval that's how the kind of the clean water act works from like a national scale 
every different state administers that differently. Um, and again, in our state, it's TCQ administers the Clean okay. Water Act work that we do. So the, the water quality does not tell you you can or cannot swim. The only thing that does is the ordinance that is in the city of San Antonio. Okay. But yes, you can paddle, you can canoe, kayak, paddleboard. You can do all those kinds of things um, without breaking any ordinances or being at risk of a fine or a violation. How much trash gets watched into a river on a rain event? A lot. Um, Seems like uh, I can only picture how bad it can be. Yeah. And you guys have your River Warriors going out, being yep. champions every time that happens and right. picking up a ton of trash. But do you guys have – I'm sure with the trash cleanups, y'all have tried some kind of measurement right. of how much trash is being pulled out. Do you have any, like – Yeah, the the – the best numbers we have would be from the Mission Reach. So the, we have a watershed and park operations crew. As you imagine, they, they, they are the operations crew for the watershed and for our parks. Uh, they do the Mission Reach trash cleanup work. And so last year in the Mission Reach alone, our, our watershed and park operations staff pulled out 208,000 pounds of trash. Wow. Just from the Mission Reach, eight-mile stretch, just that area. I think it was like 224 tires or something along those lines. Um, so, you know, obviously that's going to be the biggest – areas just downstream of downtown but that gives you an idea of in an eight mile stretch for one year it was two hundred and eight thousand pounds we have we have cleanups all the time we just got another one the other day the city of shirts is going to do one um so like that wouldn't be counted in our collection total from the mission reach and so you know things you guys are doing like the you know honey hole hates trash thing is awesome like that's really really cool because uh, there's like i think river aid san antonio is a group that does a lot of mm-hmm. trash pickup like that's really cool to see because as we talked about with like apple snails it is not the river authority can't do it on its own. The city can't, the county can't. I mean, it really does take buy-in to pick it up, but also to uh, throw it outside of your window. I, yeah, I, it still blows my mind that my wife and I were sitting at a subway parking lot the other day, uh, leaving. You know, we had our had our sandwiches in our car going home, and there's these two guys in a Mustang sitting in this parking lot. And they finish, and they roll their windows down, and they tie their bag of Subway up and throw it on the ground and drive off. And it just blows my mind that people still do that. But it, it happens, and it's like, you know, how do you affect that behavior? Because there's nothing that, that, like, an agency can do to, can do about that. It's just changing people's minds to, like, value the city and value the river and value these things. And one of the biggest things that people ask me all the time is, like, this question I always get stumped by is, what's the, what's the biggest thing, what's the biggest challenge, what's the biggest thing you hope to achieve? And... I always say the biggest thing I hope to achieve is like instilling pride in, in, in our community and people instilling pride in the city of San Antonio instilling pride in the river. And that's why things like, well, the river is this toxic dump site. Like that's, it's, it's fine to talk about that from a perspective of, I think this is a toxic dump site. But then if people say that again and again and again, you're not going to, you're going to throw your trash in a toxic dump site. You're not going to throw your trash. If somebody tells you, this is a beautiful natural resource we have. Your mind's going to just shift a little bit and go, well, I'm not going to throw my subway bag right here. Yeah. I'm going to put it in the trash can eight feet away from me. Um, so I, I think that that instilling pride in people and having that, I'm not going to, I'm going to take an action right here to take the extra 30 steps to put my bottle in that trash can, or I'm going to hold it in my hand or put it in my pocket so I can get somewhere to throw it away. Cause that it, it does take a lot of us as individuals. There's broad sweeps that, that we can do that the city can do that the County can do. Um, but again, things like the, the, you know, the honey hole hates trash, like that's super cool to see and really glad to hear you guys doing that. Cause that's the exact kind of community type push and involvement that it takes to make a difference. Um, so one thing with talking about conservation all the time is it can be really like doom and gloom, like apple snails, invasive species, 
whatever we've already talked about a lot of it, and right. every time we have somebody on, it's doom and gloom. What is in in your career? What has been the biggest success story that you've been a part of? Whether and we haven't even touched about your time at the coast, and we don't have time to whether it be at the coast or yeah. with the San Antonio River Authority. Yeah, the the coolest thing that we've done is the Guadalupe Bass reintroduction in the Mission Reach. Um, Guadalupe Bass are, are state fish of Texas, endemic species, so they only exist here in Texas, and uh, they're a species of greatest conservation need. They're a state threatened species, uh, and they were you know they're in decline. There's a they're really common in hill country streams. So a lot of those hill country streams are at problems for water quality or water quality and water quantity. And so in 2013, uh, you know, tail end of the big drought, 2012, 2013, tail end of a big drought, Medina River started going dry and very, very dry, like just very small pools and pockets in these different areas. And so we started helping out with Bandera County River Authority and Groundwater District and Texas Parks and Wildlife. We started working with them to try to pull pull fish out of these pools and move them into more, you know, persistent waters whether that's in the San Antonio or just deeper pockets in the Medina. We started seeing a lot of, a lot of Guadalupe bass and we've pulled them out to the AE Woods uh, fish hatchery and Heart of the Hills fish hatchery with Parks and Wildlife. And they started using those individuals as broodstock to start developing, you know, producing more an, more animals. And over the course of 2013 through 2015, we put about 84,000, about 85,000 fish in the Mission Reach. Most of them... 99.9% of them, you know, kind of fingerling and fry. So an inch, two inch, maybe up to three inch fish. And ever since 2014, we've had a reproducing population of Guadalupe bass in the mission reach. The other really cool thing is that they hybridize a lot with smallmouth and we don't have a smallmouth population in the San Antonio. So up in some of these hill country streams, they do. So there's a lot of hybridization concerns in some of these different streams. Well, we haven't seen any hybridization in the San Antonio mm. So you guys still have pure, um, we still have pure Guadalupe, Guadalupe bass, bass. Yeah. and we're the only one of the reintroduction efforts in the state that has that. There's been some some on the on the Lano. Um, now is that because you pulled them from the Medina and there's no smallmouth on the Medina? Yeah, and there, so because there. I think yeah. we we were talking with Nick. Uh, I know we're talking with someone that that's brought. Been maybe brought it wasn't up. Nick. We were talking with somebody, and it's like there's just some areas where. You know, even looking at a fish, you might say, oh, this is a pure Guadalupe bass, but then you DNA test right. it, and it's like 90-10. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, one of the one of the really interesting things, because we do, we collect fin clips from all the guads that we mm-hmm. catch in our basin, and we send them off to Parks and Wildlife, and this guy Preston Bean does a lot of really cool genetic work with them. One thing that's been really interesting is the genetic genetics is an ever-changing field. Uh, I actually did my graduate research on eel genetics in the Pacific. And what I did 10 years ago is like, you know, talking to people about that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's like the Stone Age now because 10 or 12 years in genetics is like a lifetime in some of these other sciences. Mm. So something that, that today, that whenever these fish were put on eight years ago was considered pure Guadalupe bass, 100% Guadalupe bass, there's just more sophisticated markers now that are saying um, this is 93.7 guad and smallmouth or guad and spot but that might just be the natural makeup of these fish where you're going to share with a, such a closely related species you're going to share some genetic information right. so is it really a hundred zero you know with some of these specific markers on a gene or on a chromosome that say this is this is a hundred and zero because again in our in our basin whenever we're putting in 
pure Guadalupe bass. We just don't have smallmouth. There's not smallmouth in the San Antonio. We've never found one. Parks has never found one. We've never had reports from anglers of smallmouth in the San Antonio. So unless we're just all missing it, they're not there. So for us to see some of these numbers, some of the theories, and we, we don't know for sure, some of the theories that genetic markers are getting more sophisticated and we're understanding these, these, the makeup of these species more and more. And that's one of the theories. There may be other theories and I'm sure that's one of those things you can probably debate all day long. Um, so we're not, we're not seeing the level of introgression or hybridization that some of these other areas are seeing. Uh, and again, we're still ongoing with our, with our fin clipping process and sending those, those results off. And, and, and I'm, I'm really, really glad you guys brought that up too, because, um, there's a, I'll do a little, a little plug. There was a book recently written called Wilder, um, the author's name is Millie Kerr and there's a, f- it's about rewilding throughout the world. And so there, there's a, there's a, a chapter on like scimitar, scimitar horned oryx and Chad. There's a, a, a chapter about flightless birds in, in New Zealand. And there's a chapter about the San Antonio and the mission reach. And so she came down last Tuesday and did, we did like a book release event. And so her and I had a conversation at the witty and she, we talked about the same thing, like, you know, optimism versus pessimism and, and realism and how did that mixes together. And, um, you know, we do tend to focus on invasive species and the negative stories. And we get, we get the, the express news or San Antonio report coming and asking us questions and saying, talk about this invasive species, talk about this river draining, talk about this thing you're doing. And we always at the very end go, the San Antonio river is a really healthy ecosystem. The San Antonio river has way more positive stories than it does negative stories. Um, you know, we have Guadalupe bass, we have a, you know, a, a really, really healthy muscle population. We're doing a muscle reintroduction. We're doing this, this, you know, the largest urban ecosystem restoration in the entire country, which the mission reach still is to this day. All of these really, really positive, really, really cool things where people can go and take their kids to the mission reach and go fishing. Um, you know, Brackenridge park has its issues. People can take their kids to Brackenridge park and go fishing. The, the positive impacts that the river has, on the city from a cultural perspective are overwhelmingly positive. The, the effects that the, the system has from an ecological perspective are overwhelmingly positive. And so we can look and we can nitpick at these negative stories and we should be concerned about apple snails and we should be concerned about zebra mussels and we should be concerned about other invasive species. We should also be really, really excited about freshwater mussels and really, really excited about kayaking opportunities and really, really excited about microfishing and all of these things that we can do in San Antonio, like in this urban, you know, we don't have to drive five or six hours to find a healthy river system. Again, we can walk to this. We can ride our bike to this. We can take a 10 minute drive to this. And I think if people again, have that value, have that pride and hear more of those positive stories that just, that, that resonates with you. And hopefully you can see that as an individual, you know, this is a healthy system. Um, and again, I have the privilege of, of working for the river authority and really knowing the health of the water and we'll take our dog down to the water most days in the summertime. She's a, you know, she's got black fur, so she's, you know, scorching in the summertime down here and she'll be swimming in the river and somebody comes by and goes, do you know what the water quality is there? And I have to kind of stop myself from going, I actually do. But, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of go back and be like, you know, it, it's great. She loves it. It's cooling her off and, and, and she's always been just fine. And, and, but it's like that feeling of like, yeah, I have no problem. My dog swimming in there. I personally have no problem kayaking in there. Um, I'll admit to breaking the city ordinance and swimming in the river quite a few times myself. And, um, you know, so I have tremendous value and pride in that. Again, I have the good fortune of working for an organization who knows a lot about the river, but again, taking opportunities like this to talk to you guys or the river symposium or going to a witty event, like those are really opportunities that we cherish because we can kind of set the record straight with some of these things. There are concerns, there are warts, 
but the overall picture is a really, really positive, yeah. really, really good one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know I I learned. I mean, like I had that misconception that the San Antonio River was just you know disgusting. If you right. took it, you immediately washed <laughs> your hands, and yeah. that's just you know. How was it? If you, talk, if you caught a fish, yeah. try not you to touch just it. Just burn all, all you know. your stuff. <laughs> burn everything. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. You know? And um, that's why I told the kid, I'm like, hey, I, I hope you, you enjoyed this Tinkara rod, but we, we need to go burn it now. This is our San Antonio River gear, and this yeah, is our everything our else gear. Yeah. Yeah. They don't touch. Yeah. And that's cool because, again, you guys are educated individuals. You take the time to talk to people about these kinds of things. and. Um, you know, so I, that, that's really cool. You're taking the time to kind of think about that, but then looking at it from a, a hopefully, you know, a, a different perspective and, um, you know, again, and not a, it's not, it's not more informed or less informed. It's just, you know, some people know different systems and some people know different right. parts of that. And so being able to kind of talk about it from a holistic perspective is, is really cool. And again, is really, really cool to talk to you guys about this kind of stuff. Cause, um, as you can imagine, it, you know, it's a, it's a passion of mine. I'm, I'm from San Antonio. Uh, never knew anything about the river as a kid growing up, except for the boring place for field trips. Um, you know, the river walk downtown, taking family to these places. And now all of a sudden, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of kayaking the full 240 miles multiple times and going down to the saltwater barrier and being in San Antonio Bay on a kayak. And it's like, those are just like opportunities and things I'll cherish the rest of my life to get that pride. But I hope other people can find ways to get that pride in the river. Cause again, and that's, ultimately how we make it better as a community is by having pride in that and seeing that as a valued natural resource. Yeah. Sean, before we end, do you have any questions for us? Yeah. Again, it's like we talked about a little before we started this whole entire thing, but um, you know, the, the, we talked about time frame for y'all starting this, but you know, the, the idea to go in this general direction with, with this type of podcast and then just kind of, you know, you guys have had hundred and, 20 episodes. I think this is 120 yeah. or one, this will be one, 120 or 121. This yeah. will be 121. And so like, just like some of the things like as a, almost like a, a mini recap of like, what have been some of the things that have like connected with you guys the most or things that, that you think you've like carried through, whether it's in your, your personal life or your, uh, you know, your personal life with interactions with wild spaces and just, I'm curious what you've learned over that time period that you guys would think are like really important things for you to connect with. Cause I think understanding that helps somebody in my role understand how to connect to folks that are, you know, you guys are very much involved in, in my career field, but understanding what connects with you guys, how it connects with you guys, something that helps me communicate better. So I'm kind of curious on that end, two questions there, but. Well, I think for me, having to do like my mindset has opened up a lot as far as like, if we just take fishing as an example, you know, I, at one point I was like do or die fly fishing, right? Now, you know, even more even more recently I've opened my, oh, I bought a tin car rod. I'm trying these other things. Uh, Having guys like, like Joe on who's saying these are tools. Yeah. You don't, don't, don't box yourself into one form. It's okay to try these other things. Yep. And, uh and so just opening my mindset, we have had a wide variety of different people with different opinions on, uh, you know, all kinds of different. We've had a, a meme account guy on who just makes joke about his jokes about a certain fishery and getting his perspective on, like, comedy and the whole outdoors versus having, like, conservation groups and uh, Graham Jones Game Wardens Guides. And just, like, taking in all these different perspectives has opened up my perspective about everything. I think pointing out to you, Leaning into your second question, like how what you guys do uh, with the San Antonio River Authority um, connect more with us, 
I think like y'all's event was really cool. Um, I don't know how many people you guys had. There were quite a few people when I was there, but I didn't even know about it. I just randomly yeah. happened happened on to you guys. But going in there and seeing a Guadalupe bass in a tank that was a nice fish. I'm like, oh, like I've caught guads in San Antonio, but nothing like that. And they're like, oh, we just pulled that out of the river down there this morning. <laughs> I was like, y'all pulled that out of that pool down there this morning. I'm not fishing right. Yeah. <laughs> and then walking through all of the freshwater mussels and then the apple snails and talking to you guys and giving getting that like firsthand, like I can actually see and touch the fish, I think made a big impact and why I connected with you guys so well. Because – if that wouldn't have happened, I probably would not have talked with you and Austin and kind of built this relationship yeah. to have you on. So I think doing events like that, um, I think conservation is extremely difficult. And one thing that we talked have talked about a lot is that there's so many conservation needs, and we have the benefit of being able to have you on, have someone from the Devil's River um, on, and have Texas Parks and Wildlife guys on. They all talk about different things and different projects that they're working. But I'm one guy, and I have a full-time job, and I do a podcast that's uh, almost a full-time job. And I don't have the physical capabilities of applying myself to every conservation effort. And so one thing that we've talked about in the past, maybe not as recently, is like, pick something that you are fired up about, like, one thing and make that your mission. Yeah. So whether it's, like, the San Antonio River Authority, uh, River Warriors, like, it sounds like you have people that are, like, this is my mission. And so I I think the message, like, and we're kind of, I'm all over the place right now, but we're kind of, like, vomit dumping to our listeners, like, oh, there's all these conservation needs. But I think the moral of the story and the takeaway is, as opposed to listening to us, talk to 50, 100 different people with all these different conservation needs is like listen to these because they're important, but then also pick one that really resonates with you and apply yourself and volunteer and make a difference with that one need. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's a really good a really good summation of that part of, of picking something that is, is very important to you, yeah, whether it's a species, whether it's a location, whether it's a river. I mean, because it can, it can be overwhelming and, you know, it is, it is on us to worry about that in our full-time jobs on a regular basis and try to try to do the shotgun approach to things. But you as an individual can take the rifled approach and look at, mm -hmm. this is my thing. Because mm -hmm. I still want to, you know, you want to do this thing and it's fun. You also want to go have fun. You want to go yep. do something else and, and have that enjoyable part. But then if you can, if you can narrow down your approach and things you want to change, I mean, that's or the thing you want to change or the thing you want to contribute to. Like that's a hugely beneficial. I think that's a really good way to boil and that down you, to people. You did a really nice summary earlier of um, kind of spearheaded by our question of like what is we conservation is always doom and gloom, and I think we always ask that to people because it is. It always seems like doom and gloom, and it's almost depressing. Yeah. And so I think like focus San Antonio River Authority, like bringing attention to the apple snails, but also being like putting in your face like these are the positive things that we've done and we're like proud of these yeah. and um, working over some of the stereotypes that have been built up that we had even believed before talking to you, right? Yeah. which is difficult. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So very common. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just been one of those things like knowing these things exist. That's one thing, you know, so th that you guys have these outings, you do these things together and, and, and 
I can't say it's not a marketing issue because I just maybe I just haven't looked. Yeah. Right. I haven't haven't looked at those things. But I know within doing this podcast with with Zach and Landon, and and having these talks like with Chris Johnson, I don't think I'd ever like throw a tin car. I mean, I kind of had thrown one previously, but you have those conversations and like, well, this is why. And he's opening up to these ideas. And then we had uh, Nick, you know, Loveland talking about you know, the microfishing. And now, you know, you coming in and talking about these stretches that I was just at yeah. that I hadn't necessarily gone to because other spots that, that I go. But now knowing, okay, these things exist. And with, with a seven-year-old to be able like, hey, let's go check out this stuff and, and do that. And, and I have a... Um, my godfather's brother uh, is involved with, uh, I forget the name of the group, but they do, they, they t- take out a lot of the invasive plant life around uh, the, um, you know, the edges of, of the, the Mission Reach right. uh, s- stretches. And I forget the name of it, but they go out there and they're, you know, they're digging up stuff and, yeah. they're, and, they're, and, and focusing on something and, and being very passionate about it. And we're all fishing, and to your point, you said earlier, you do it now so that you're not struggling and doing three times, ten times as much work to get it to where it was right. at. Yep. You know, it's easier to maintain it now than, than waiting until, you know, until it's, until it's needed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One, one thing you mentioned too was the, the marketing part. And there's a, our assistant general manager, Steve Graham has been there for, for a long time at the River Authority. And he has a line that is, is unfortunately true is, is the people that know us love us, but not a lot of people know us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's well said because I think whenever we have, conversations people have events and they people come out they connect with what we do but we do not have a reach again i get my top of one of my best friends still thinks i work for saws <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like <laughs> dude yeah. you gotta you gotta you gotta get with the river authority part <laughs> it's it's been 10 years now yeah. um but I, that's a that's a good example and and uh yeah it is something that we need to get ourselves out there more and more and connect with more people in some way um because again then you have connections you know like this is a you know, one end of the connection part obviously is going and doing this is something that's very unique for us as well. But there's all sorts of other connections you can make that that can be mean, meaningful for the environment, meaningful for individuals and the impacts on them. So, um, yeah. Well, we're in the same boat. I mean, I, I had to step away for a second, but we're in the same boat. It's like we would like to connect with more people too. Yeah. And it's like how do you do that, right? <laughs> like we want more people to listen. So it's just like it's it's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is. Yeah, yeah. So for we can, sure. We can figure it out together and – and, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, well, I've got some ideas. Just to maybe, and I don't know if uh, we could get out with you guys digging up some uh, freshwater mussels and stuff, and do some. We had a YouTube channel and put yeah. some of that content yeah. on video, and maybe like be able to show some of these things that exactly. you guys are working all that on. Much more tangible too. Yeah, and I'd love to go dig around in the river and pull yeah. some snails out or. Well, t- our, our f- muscles and take some snails away. And I'm just waiting for this episode to end so we can get them onto the map and point on where all the big <laughs> yeah. cichlids are in the river. I, I will. Uh, you guys had your your uh, prognostication earlier with the Texas Tech uh, record. I will. I will be on the record here of saying this is like I think that in the next two years the state record for garlic bass will be in the Mission Reach. Because so? yeah, because really? we've caught some. I th- I think it's like. 1.85 pounds or something. It's you know, it's not a huge. Obviously, I don't get there that big. We've we've caught fish electrofishing that were bigger than that. Really, and obviously, and, but that's the thing too. I've heard we know that those are well, those are real. Yeah. Bass, and right? I've I've heard too from other guys from TPWD that they're like, oh, we've electro we've electroshock fish like that are state record guadalupe bass. Yeah, you know, from like the, 
From what, like what, what water bodies? Um, from uh, Colorado. No, I think it was the Lano. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I think it, if I it was a it was a while ago, but I think it was the Lano. Yeah. I I think with the amount with the amount of people that are out there, I think it's a matter of time. And I think the other part too is that I th- I think a lot of people do is uh, our our new GM is a big angler. His name is Derek Bass. He's a big angler. And he was sending me some pictures recently of him fishing and he was pulling things out that he was calling largemouth bass and then they ended up being spotted bass and just, you know, kind of, Hey, this is the difference between these species. I think a lot of people are catching bigger guads and calling them largemouth who just aren't as familiar with identification because we've, we've pulled like five, six, seven pound largemouth out of the San Antonio in the mission reach area that are, you know, really, really healthy fish. And those are certainly largemouth, but I think there's some that are kind of like a fringe fish, that somebody just might not think they might just think this is largemouth, put it back in. Yeah. Might not know spot, it might not know guad. But I think somebody who knows the difference, I think will catch a, a bigger a guad. Do you yeah. know what the water body record for Guadalupe bass on the San Antonio is, I do or not the largemouth bass water I do body not. record? No. The only one that I'm aware of is because recently the what, is either Channel or Blue record was set on the San Antonio, um, not you know, not all the way farther south where we expected it to be, but this guy pulled up a huge fish from Falls City. Um, it's like 42 pounds or something. Whoa, nice. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, again, I, I cannot remember if it was blue or I think, I think that would be probably be probably too big for a channel. So it's probably a blue, but it was a really nice fish. This it's like a 16-year-old kid down in like Falls City. Um, it's always a kid. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It's like struggling to pick this thing up. Yeah. <laughs> but I, that's, that's my call. So we'll see how that one matures, if that ages well or if it's just nonsense in two years. Um, but I, yeah, cause again, the water body is really cool and we have pictures of, of us doing some electro fishing surveys and we're holding up, you know, four and f- four or five, four or five pound largemouth bass, like four or five of them we caught in one spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 we keep those spots to ourselves. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's really cool to see those pull out of the river. Well, uh, if I catch the world record Guadalupe bass out of the San Antonio river, I'll do a, uh, little traveling tour for you guys. Okay. Yes. There's, there's, not, there's, <laughs> there's not a fly fishing record, body record yet. Because I brought, I brought up the water body records for San Antonio River. Bass, Guadalupe, smallmouth, 14 inches, pound and a half, uh, 1.37. Large mouth was about four and a half. This is on the fly or conventional? No, this is conventional. Oh, there's so only let's go get two. it this weekend. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's only two uh, fly Are fishing. these the catch and release records or are these the... Uh, Weighted records. They, well, they, you have to they didn't officially say. get them weighed. Uh, this is Texas Parks and Wildlife calling it, so I don't know if it didn't necessarily say if they were released. I know on fly fishing, there's a common carp uh, by Kyle Trainer on a Pat's rubber leg uh, at four pounds, uh, a little over 20, um, 20 inches, and a real grand cichlid at one pound, 11 inches. Those are the only two. Wait, one pound, 11 inches. Those don't. That's what it says, length. Oh, it's one pound and 11 inches. I thought <laughs> no, you were giving yeah. me a combined no. measurement. It's no, one pound, 11 that? inches. It's late. It's been a long day. Uh, but, yeah, no, so we're you're, you're good to go on that. And there's even a, a junior angler one, so Carver can get in there and. Yeah. Hopefully there you go. Yeah, there's a lot get of good a, spots in the San Antonio. Get one of those, uh, submit a water body record for micro species. I mean, there's a lot of empty 1. blanks. 1.7 inches. A lot of empty <laughs> blanks <laughs> on this. <laughs> yeah, so. get some stone rollers, get some some bullhead minnows. There's all sorts of, yeah, there's uh, a... Yeah. Oh, here's my cool favorite. 
the the uh, well, what do you think the uh, Wadi Body record is for a rainbow trout there for yeah. San Antonio? Wait, there's rainbow trout in the San Antonio? Not anymore, thankfully. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah I know they did some cu- a couple of uh, releases. Oh, did yeah. they? They yeah. used to do that for years and years before effluent went in the system. When it was still spring fed, it was cool enough to keep trout. Now that it's effluent water, it's never cool enough for them, so they don't stock in the main stem anymore. Huh. We're just under a foot. Uh, this happened in January 6th of 2007. Caught on trout bait. Nice. Trout bait. There you go. That record will hold forever. That yeah. Probably, uh, we that could probably safe. go back. Yeah. We, <laughs> we could probably go back and say uh, that day was a was a drop of, of rain. Imagine yeah. being that guy to catch it and go, hey, is there ro- is there a wadi yeah, right. bird record on this thing? Mm-hmm. Like, let's He's go the check guy. it out. He's the guy that asked, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they'll stock like, like Southside Lions Park on Salado Creek Watershed. They'll still do some trout sometimes in the in the winter. They'll There's a Parks and Wildlife website where they'll do all the yeah. all the stocking yeah. events. Miller's but Pond was one of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's no more there. They do bluegill and channel cats in the main stem, Mission Reach area, and that's those are the only thing that we stock right now. So maybe you get a – Record bluegill, get get that micro fishing going, and there's all sorts of options out there. Yeah, the darters would be cool. There's yeah. a log perch, Texas log perch, are up in the area now, which is a, a fairly recent find in the Mission really? Ridge. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah, cool. Thirty yeah. thirty nine pound blue cat is the record in San Antonio. So maybe that's the recent Ooh. one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. So there's a guy, that, yeah, Fall City or something like that. But yeah, it was kind of a cool see, kind of cool to see that that picture he sent up. So. Well, Sean, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks. And have fun at the Michigan game. I appreciate that. It'll be a lot of fun. I really – this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you guys having us on. And, um, you know, again, I know we talked about other other folks who are a little bit more involved in the day-to-day. So if you guys want to come out and do a YouTube video or, you know, have somebody else talk to you guys, then please feel free to reach out because this was really cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. Love, love what you guys it. are doing yeah. here. So, yeah, thank you very much for the time. It was, it was fun. Thank you. Look in the description below to find links to our website, online store, YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Discord server, and blog. Please send your podcast questions and inquiries to info at honeyholeangling.com. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you again next week.